Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 273 tonight. Uh, we're going to be discussing ancient and esoteric psychedelic use with our buddy, uh, P.D. Newman, well, a.k.a. Danny Newman. Uh, and he's been on the show a couple times before. Uh, after we're done, I'll add the links to the previous episodes down below. Uh, we did the first episode on his book, Alchemically Stone, which we'll discuss a little bit. And then I think like last year we did an episode on his book that came out called Angels and Vermilion, which I have right here. And I don't know what else. You sent me something else, too. I don't know what this is. I haven't even read it yet, by the way, either, to be honest with you. That's the, the official journal of the... Uh... The American Rosicrucian Society. I sent it to you because I've got a couple of papers in there. One of them on uh, the role of entheogenic mushrooms in early Rosicrucian practice. Okay. Well, yeah. So that, I'm looking forward to checking this out. Then I still I just found it when I was going through, and uh, after I read, I have a whole stack of books on my shelf here next to me. You can't see. Uh, I'm like, oh, what's this little thing? It's like a little uh, pamphlet. I got to go through there and read that. But uh, I forgot you sent it. But um, yeah, so we're going to talk about all that. Uh, you can check out PD's books. I have the link down below at the bottom. Um, I've also, let's see here. What else do we have for PD? He's got a Facebook group. Um, yeah, all the links are there down below. Just click on them. And, uh, yeah, you can follow Shane on Twitter at Old Vet Symposium. You can follow Danny on Twitter uh, as well. Um, and, yeah, just we're going to have an awesome show tonight. If you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below. We have a Patreon. Uh, you know, we have a Patreon page if you want to find all of our exclusive content on there for just $2 a month. Uh, we also have a merch store, which I'm going to be working on some new designs soon. There's a bunch of cool stuff already in there. Uh, we're also working on getting a new logo kick in, um, and check out the trailer for our documentary that's coming out in March. Uh, it'll be premiering March 10th through 12th at the Roswell UFO Expo. Uh, shout out to Toby and, um, yeah, it's called as within, so without from UFOs to DMT and I'll premiere, I'll play the trailer at the end of the episode as we, uh, close out and I'm trying to think, oh, the easiest way to support the show, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, give us a like. Uh, we do all of our shows live on YouTube. Also, if you are listening on an audio platform on 
Spotify or Apple. We also have video episodes on Spotify. Please check out our YouTube. And if you are watching on YouTube, please check out all of our audio stuff and leave us a nice review. We appreciate it. So without further ado, welcome back on the show, Danny. How are you? No, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. I always love, uh, love talking to you guys. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, so yeah, I think last time we discussed angels and vermilion, um, about John D and the philosopher's stone and all that stuff. Uh, but why don't you give people a little bit of your background that haven't seen you on the show before? Um, you're the author of alchemically stoned, uh, and you also are a Freemason, just give a you know give us a little bit of a background or a, a summary of how you got into this, what you're all about, that kind of a thing. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> my my entry to you know esoteric occult topics that that whole domain was really through psychedelics, through taking um, uh, mushrooms, LSD. I started at a pretty young age. I think the first the first time I took LSD, I was eleven, and uh, it was a, a love affair from then on. Um, and it, it was due to actually mushroom trips that uh, we were taking as teenagers. When our doses started increasing, we started experimenting more with 20 and 30 gram doses. And we started having experiences where I, I had, I mean, as a Westerner raised Southern Baptist in, you know, Tennessee and Mississippi, I had absolutely no frame of reference for what we were experiencing and uh, that stuff aside for a little while and said that I was going to pursue um, a legitimate system of initiation and in the faith that somebody knew what was going on with, uh, if not with mushrooms, at least with the the territories we were encroaching upon by taking those mushrooms. Um, You said 2030, is that dried grams or is that what? Dry grams. Yeah. Wow. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, um, it, 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 it steadily, it, it wasn't all of a sudden that we would just, we were like, we're going to take, you know, 20 I mean, grams. The most I've done is like 10 or 11. And I'm like, that's, that's I insane. Mean, I, well, I, keep, I don't know what I, I'd be gone. <laughs> Heroic no, well, I got, there's a caveat. You got to keep in mind, these are our field caps that we're picking ourselves in nature, um, which are not as potent as something like penis envy. So two grams of penis envy, you would get to that place with more like four grams of what I'm taking. So uh, it's not as much as it sounds like, but that's what, that's the weight we were taking. Um, and, and it was, I mean, the, I think the first time I took 30 grams was with my wife in college. She wasn't my wife yet, but I snuck her into my dorm room and we had uh, picked all these mushrooms and dried them out in the oven. And uh, just the, our rule was basically eat them till you don't want to eat them and then keep eating them. And I remember she would eat them with between chips, like a little sandwich, a mushroom between chips. Uh, I could never do it that way. It's uh, I, the flavor I've never been fond of that flavor. Oh, dude, but, that, uh, that smell and that taste. <laughs> I mean, you can smell like the psilocybin. I don't know. I, I, is it the psilocybin? I don't know. But you can smell that smell. And especially, I mean, look, the, the, the more in the past when I've masticated and just chewed on them, let them dissolve in my cheeks, those have been the best ones. But it's such a brutal thing yeah. to leave them in there. It's like, oh. 
Yep. I, I have to say that rough. there hasn't been a time that I've taken mushrooms that I have not vomited until I found. So I read somewhere that if you grind them up and 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 drink orange juice with them, lemon. It, it, or so, yeah, lemon juice, and that's lemon what I did. And that's the only way I can not vomit every time. I'm I vomit every time. Mm -hmm. I do too. I'm I'm a puker man. I I get that rocks in the belly feeling once I exceed ten grams, and it's I'm gonna puke every time. Uh, but I try to hold it down long enough to get it in my system, but uh, you end up puking up. They go down, you know, brown, gray, and they come up blue, <laughs> like a like you're an alien or something. But it, it was from those experiences that uh, I decided to try and get involved with something. And what I turned to was Freemasonry, mainly because it's it's visible here in the South. Um, and it, and it, it was in the Master Mason degree where I encountered the famous sprig of acacia symbol that we that's placed at the head of the the grave of the candidate who's symbolically killed in this ritual and we had just you know a couple of years earlier extracted our first batch of dmt from acacia so i had all these bells going off and whistles and thinking you know this is impossible there's no this has nothing to do with your dmt experiences this is uh just put it out of your head and um and i did tried to but i couldn't shake that intuition that there's something more to it and I, so i just started reading every different version of the masonic degrees i could find there's not just one version you know there's they change over time they change by state uh, there are different rites that have their own varieties of these rituals. So I read everything and nothing seemed to give me any, any, uh, any kind of leeway in the, in what was going on or if there was anything going on with this. But finally, uh, one winter, I think it was in the winter of, um, 2012, uh, we were, I was, I was reading Count Cagliostro's um, Egyptian rite. It's called the Masonic Magician, the life and death of Count Cagliostro and his Egyptian rite of Freemasonry. And in there was the uh, the first time it was ever spelled out. It, it says, you know, that they're drinking acacia in this in this elixir. And the effect which he says should result from it is, uh, and this is uh, 18th century, so you have to keep in mind the language they have access to, how they would express this. But he says, so that it will raise your consciousness to understand what he's going to say. So he's literally saying something about expansion of consciousness. And, uh, and that was it. Once I found that, I said, I said, there's gotta be more out there that I can find. And, and, uh, it was at first, you know, I only had the Cagliostro, uh, reference, but when I, I, I brought that reference, to grand archivist and grand historian of the Scottish Rite, a man named Arturo de Hoyos, absolutely brilliant researcher. And I said, Art, man, I think, I think they were tripping on DMT, at least in Cagliostro's Rite, you know, but I can't tell if this was going on in regular masonry. And, and at first he was kind of, yeah, that's not what was going on. <clears throat> and it was only coincidence that he was in the process of translating a Masonic Rite um, from Russia called the Rite of Melisino, 
Melusina was actually Cagliostro's contact when he went to Russia. So they knew one another. And in this ritual, he says basically the same thing, that the acacia is the prima materia or primal matter of alchemy. And from it, you can produce this philosopher's stone that causes visions. And um, he compares it to the burning coal in the book of Isaiah, which is when an angel places this coal to his lips, like as if he's smoking it. And um, and he said, look, I, f I think I found something that corroborates what you're saying. So I think you're on to something. And I said, well, then I'm going to publish. And he gave me permission to published the bit from the Melusino Rite, which hadn't been published yet. It was eventually published by the, what's called the Grand College of Rites, um, a Masonic organization that publishes uh, defunct Masonic rites and rituals. Um, and that's about the time I published uh, Alchemically Stoned. Now, in Alchemically Stoned, I couldn't do any more than point a finger at the moon. I couldn't do any more than just say, these guys were doing DMT. I couldn't say how they came to do it, how the Acacia got in Freemasonry or what happened after them. Um, and it wasn't until a couple years later, I, I kind of exhausted the Masonic domain in, in these terms. And I, <clears throat> I had to take a step back and, and look at it <clears throat> as an alchemical problem, not as a Masonic problem, because these two people who are you, even though they're Masons and they're writing these Masonic rituals, they're alchemists and they're describing it in alchemical terms. So there was a huge learning curve there. I had to buy, I bought everything that's in print, um, every alchemical text, manuscript, commentary. Um, and that's when it finally clicked that, uh, how it found its way in there. And that's what this, what angels in vermilion is about how this was actually something that the Royal society was preoccupied with. Um, they were on this mad search for drugs because they, they wanted to talk to angels as, as strange as that sounds, um, was a member of the Royal society who this man named De Sagulier, who became the third grandmaster of the premier grand lodge in London. And He's the one who rewrote the Master Mason degree and put that sprig of acacia in there. Prior to that, acacia wasn't mentioned anywhere in masonry. It was they mentioned something called cassia, and its significance isn't that it's entheogenic. Back then, it was that cassia is an ingredient that is used in embalming and in mummification. So it was part of that death symbolism that went along with what was happening to the candidate in that Master Mason degree. Wasn't the so acacia really, something else? Before, like, wasn't it like an olive branch or something? And then it became it, it was cassia, a sprig cassia. of cassia. Oh, okay. yeah. Yep. <clears throat> and uh, now Pike, in in his commentary, he does say that the myrtle branch is uh, is of the same. Is it's a different type of the same symbol. Uh, it's he says it's a symbol of the immortality of the soul, and that's what they say in the degree. They also say it's a symbol of innocence and they get that from a, a false etymology of, of, of acacia. Acacia means, or, or, yeah, means thorned. And it's, it, it, it's a name that Dioscorides, this Greek physician gave to the tree because it's most defining characteristic are these gnarly thorns. But the progenitors of Masonic ritual, they didn't know it meant that. And they tried to interpret it uh, on, according to a false etymology, 
a kakios or not evil or innocent. So that's where the innocence comes from. But they also purport that it's a symbol of the immortality of the soul, which I found to be extremely uh, fascinating because it's consistent with this interpretation, this, this drug that causes what, what has many times been described as an out of body experience. Uh, yeah, no, super interesting. Um, so with, I guess my question is, there's so many different types of acacia, um, with the, I know there's a lot of acacia trees and plants near, I know people bring up like Egypt and, uh, that area. I was told, and I don't know if this is true, that the acacia trees in near Egypt by like the Giza plateau and stuff do not contain DMT. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, no, it's not. Okay. I mean, so, it's not, that, that claim is not true. They, okay. And that was from an academic. Yeah. That was from an academic, by the way. So I just, that's why I was talking. I wanted to talk to you about that because I feel like you would have a, a little bit more of an in-depth take on that. So the, the first, the, uh, the first time we hear the word alchemy, read the word alchemy is with this man named Zosimos of Panopolis, who was a, uh, he, he, he was, he made statues for rituals, what we would call animated statues. I don't mean mechanical contrivances. I mean, they were instilled with anima or soul. They were alive and that was his job, but he, he was in possession of this secret that he called, uh, alchemia, uh, that he claimed to have learned from a woman named Maria Prophetissima or Maria the Prophetess. And he specifically says it's acacia that well, first I'll back up. He's got a student named Theosabia and Theosabia is learning astrology from the Egyptian priesthood. She will, she brings them offerings that they give to the, their gods. And in return, they they're teaching her astrology. And he says that this Egyptian priesthood, number one, they're not worshiping gods. They're worshiping fallen angels. And he, he's you got to keep in mind, Zosimos is a Gnostic Christian. So he's got this idea of fallen angels. And he tells her that when, when they give these offerings, they're actually giving them to the angels. And furthermore, he says astrology is the the mechanism by which these fallen angels trap man's soul into the fetters of matter and get us stuck here. It's a mechanism of fate. So she says, well, I think you're wrong because they're teaching me what she calls propitious astrology, meaning how to do elections for the proper time to do certain actions. And he says elections are not the, if you use astrology and follow, follow what it tells you to do, you're just enmeshing yourself further in fate. But he says, I have this technique of extracting the soul from matter, of separating it from matter. And he claims that's what alchemy is. So she says, you know, she says, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. I'll take you up on it. I'll go and learn from you and see what you have to offer. And, uh, he starts teaching her about cinnabar. Now cinnabar is already in China is an alchemical symbol. They used it to teach cosmology. How because cinnabar is composed of sulfur and mercury. So they would put it through a process and extract the sulfur and mercury and show how you get two from one. Um, they're showing how we get from a, one God, from the monad to all of this stuff here and on this plane. We, we don't know 
where he encountered this or how, but he must have because he's using the almost identical terminology and he's talking about this cinnabar saying that from it he can extract uh, a certain substance and that with this substance is this this philosopher's stone, you know. And he says things like lead from cinnabar, he says lead from copper, and copper is the same situation. It's, what he's doing is choosing something red because the roots, the acacia he was working with is this rich vermilion color. So he's choosing something that is symbol, sim, similar to it. And he even says this in the letter when he, she finally says, I don't understand what cinnabar, what these metals have to do with freeing my soul. And he says, well, it's not cinnabar. It's actually acacia. And he tells her that we hide this science under the language of metallurgy because this, the processes, the techniques of metallurgy are very similar to the techniques that we're smelting is very similar to what we're about to do to extract this stone from this acacia. Um, and the acacia he's working with, he, he, I, he learned from this Maria Prophetissima and she, she didn't leave any writings, but he quotes some things from her. And she says to marry gum with gum. And this is how you get the philosopher's stone, the, the, the sought after substance. And she says that this, these gums come from the white plant that grows on the mountain in that region in the mountains in in Jerusalem, especially, which is where she was allegedly from. They call her Maria the Jewess is another name. And it was thought that that name was given to her because she was confused with Moses's sister. Um, but that, that confusion is part of the reason. And we we'll, we see that uh, into European alchemy where Moses himself becomes an alchemist. For example, in the the Turba Philosophorum, the oldest alchemical text uh, that made it to Europe. So the, this, the white plant, the acacia that grows there is called acacia albida, meaning white acacia. And it's covered in these, uh, these long flowers, tube kind of like cylinder flowers that are, are white. And when, they, when it's in bloom, it looks like it's covered in snow. That's all you see is this white but it's active. It, it has, um, it has an NDMT in the roots and that's what they're working with. He's, he's, he's constantly talking about the root of this substance. Um, and later in European alchemy, we have a man pop up who was a student of, um, uh, Edward Kelly, whom we talked about in the previous episode. Yeah. His name was Heinrich Kuhnrath. Well, Kelly and was Heinrich, just so people know, it was Dee's partner, right? He's Dee's uh, personal scryer, and he was um, using this red powder in order to see and communicate with angels. Well, he had a student that came and stayed with him for a little while. That was also, uh, I believe, he was for a time learned under Paracelsus, or they learned they they. I think he learned under Paracelsus at some, some university. Um, but he eventually went to stay with Kelly and even when Kelly eventually became Rudolph's of Rudolph of Prague, Rudolph the second's, um, uh, his, his personal alchemist his uh, uh, they called it a, the, a projector. He was their projector. 
Did you ever watch that uh, episode I did on the Codex Gigas and psychedelics? No, I didn't. Okay, so I I took the image, the first ever known image of the devil, which looks Mm -hmm. an awfully lot like uh, DMT entities. Um, And I compared them to the Hayoka uh, personal like art of people that have done DMT, you know, reports and stuff like that. And there's a lot of yeah. cro- crossover. Um, so yeah, I made that, I did that whole episode. Actually, I found a lot of connections between all that stuff. I'll so. check that out. That, I'm fascinated by that manuscript. That, but anyways, that, I was going to say, cause you, you brought up Rudolph. Um, he was said to have been so, um, enamored by the Codex Gigas that he wore that one page out with the, the devil. Like he was, uh, fascinated with that so obviously um you know you're talking about these people being familiar with dmt at that time well maybe that's why he was so enamored by it because maybe he had experienced something similar in one of these realms or something like that that's fascinating yeah i didn't i didn't know about that relationship with the gigas uh, that's that's interesting because it does kind of have that very anthropomorphic kind of man beast thing that uh that you see in in barrett's the magus it's what it reminded me of the first time i saw it were those demons and the magus if you've seen those yeah and then supposedly you know there's a lot of other stuff like that or the uh uh the guy the hermit supposedly wrote it i forget his name uh something the hermit i can't remember his name anyway supposedly he had written it in one night but i'm thinking I mean, and, and actually the calligraphy and all the stuff that they've matched up, it would take like a, a lot of years for like, somebody's whole life. But supposedly he wrote this right. one night. My thought is he maybe wrote it before and then offered it up. And so like, just watch the episode. I, I, I make a lot of connections to stuff. But yeah, I mean, that that's kind of, it's weird because it's kind of in, going along with kind of the stuff you're saying right now. So yeah, that's really fascinating. He so he he became the court projector, and when Kelly was arrested, Coonrath took his place as this as the hired hand of Rudolph. Um, so he it, he it's very probable that he knew the secret of this red powder, this acacia powder, and he names acacia also by name. He he says that. Uh, um, you got to remember, Maria said that there's one plant that two gums come from, a red gum and a white gum. And he says that the white gum is Arabic gum, which is gum acacia. He, and then he says, and it's the red gum that is the transformative substance. And like I said, Maria says these gums come from one white tree as with a white plant. So it's very likely that he got this from Kelly. Uh, and the, 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 there, there's another acacia in that region. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, but it's got DMT in the aerial parts. But it, it doesn't seem like he's talking about that. It seems like Zosimos, um, from Zosimos on, they seem to be referring to a variety that's active in the roots. And I think Nalotica's were active in the roots. That's the famous um, Egyptian acacia that tends to be depicted in art and, and uh, different uh, mythological scenes. You see Bastet chasing Apep into that acacia. There's one great image of an acacia tree with arms holding a platter and a pitcher. And there are two Egyptian worshippers 
worshippers holding their hands out, drinking the water being poured from the cicacia. And there's a, a Zosimos. He was eventually confused with a Christian uh, hermit. So Zosimos, the hermitist, is confused with Zosimus, the hermit. And Zosim, it was from this confusion that one story about Zosimos was preserved. We, we probably wouldn't have it if they didn't mistake it for this guy. But he talks about how he went into this cave with an angel, took him into a cave and they sat down at a tree and they drank water from its roots and talked about how sweet that water was and how it was the food of angels. And this idea of the food of angels is, is central to this. Um, Kelly claimed that the manuscript that he got all this from is this, what he called the book of Dunstan named after, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was uh, a blacksmith and an alchemist and subject to visions. And he claimed that it had been taken from his grave. And there's one text attributed to Dunstan that survives. Uh, we don't, he probably didn't write it, but in it, he's constantly calling, he's talking about this substance he calls angel's food. And this angel's food, he says, allows you to see into the future. It allows you to see incredible distances. He said it allows you to understand the language of the birds, which, as you probably know, that's that's a, an old alchemical idea. Alchemy is written in the language of the birds, they say, also known as the green language. They love the birds. Um, yeah. What about... Um, so... Actually, we have a question here, but give me one second uh, and we'll get to your question. I'll let Shane ask it. But I used to follow, actually, an account on Twitter called um, Zosimos of Xenopolis. Um, and this, I, I don't know if it was, obviously, um, it was somebody into alchemy and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a rare that you even hear anybody talk about um, Zosimos. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's so central to alchemy. He, that if he's where we got the word and you have plenty of people, alchemists and people interested in alchemy will say that there's not one solution. There are different schools of alchemy and that's true. But in the beginning there weren't, there was his school of alchemy and he was working with Acacia. So from the beginning, this is an entheogenic tradition. Um, so as far so just to clarify though there are DMT rich acacia strands in Egypt and the oh, Middle yeah. okay so like I said I was uh, I forget who I was talking I think it was Matthew Clark who wrote uh, botanical ecstasies you know the ayahuasca analog manuscript on uh, for soma like for me you have those two competing ideas you have chris bennett who's all about cannabis we've had him on we did a what was soma right. part one Matthew with him clark is clark is he's he his claim is that an indian variety of acacia right it was something like um like ayahuasca yeah and i'm saying yeah. i i was asking about the egyptian because like here's the thing um the uh, the story of osiris the mythology is very shamanic uh, being taken yeah. into the underworld, being disassembled, uh, then being put back together. Uh, very archetypal shamanic, something you might even see in like South America and stuff like that. So um, I the would think... The dismemberment is very shamanic. Yeah. Um, even, the, even the motif of being chopped up and thrown in the Nile, that's 
almost like instructions for what you have to do to extract the root bark. Remember the guy, he's trapped in the tree. And so the tree is chopped up and put in water. And you, you see this on lots of alchemical manuscripts um, where they're standing at this tree and there will be a crown at the roots. One of them, the whole bottom is covered in water. They're standing in water. So this, the roots are submerged. And it seems like there's something to that. It's not just accidental. You know, it, it's possible that Zosimos was just taking this symbol and saying, we could use this. Of course, Acacia was already present in religion and mythology in Egypt, but it, I mean, it's entirely possible that this was encoded in it from the beginning. I mean, we know that they, you know, had blue Lotus, cannabis, opium, um, mm-hmm. you know, probably even some tropanes, uh, even, yeah, they were even mushrooms, the even mushrooms. I found that glyph from uh, the Temple of Hathor on the outside where yeah. they're holding the little thing with the mushrooms hanging off at the little clusters. They, they're, they're, they're pots that they're yeah, growing, yeah. growing mushrooms in. Yeah. So they, they've got, uh, you know, they've got some kind of, and, the, and, and there's no denying the way those mushrooms are drawn. There are only a few mushrooms that grow like that, that have that, that's very particular psilocybe kind of angle to them they're all from one point uh they look very much like a psychedelic mushroom now i mean lots of people think that's what it is but there's just as many people who think that's not what it is they're they're mushrooms but it doesn't mean they're psychedelic um they're wouter hanegraaf yeah, and supposedly a, though they would only let the pharaohs eat mushrooms. It was like a not like a delicacy, but it was like almost like a um, special occasion that you would eat mushrooms. I haven't heard. That. I didn't hear yeah. that. I know, and like in the laws of Manu, um, you weren't allowed to touch mushrooms. They were they're off limits. So anything that's taboo, um, it's there's a good chance that there's something to it. Yeah, the pharaoh's I, like, I, hey, this technology. Yeah. I'm the only one touching yeah. this technology. You know, right? And they, the pharaohs in the beginning, they were the only ones who were, who got to go through the duat and into become an ak and go into the, uh, the what the Platonists eventually called the noetic realm, the the realm of the fixed stars, where they became a star, a, um, like a constellation kind of. But they were the only ones that could do that. It was very private. Eventually, they, it started being extended to the Pharaoh's family and then later to nobility. And at first, they would, it would be read aloud to the, to the deceased as they were being mummified. But eventually, it, it started being carved in the pyramids, like with the Pyramid of Unas, the directions are carved on the walls. And if you, if you're reading them and you follow them, it leads you out up into this, up this angular chamber to, um, uh, in the direction of the sky where there, this portal is to get on the, what they call the street of stars, which is the Milky way. But once that tomb was raided and people were able to see that and read it, they wrote it down of course, so they could do it. And then it started being, it was still secret. They weren't supposed to do it. So they would paint it, paint it on the inside of coffins. And that's when the pyramid texts become the coffin texts. Um, and there are, there are variations in these coffin texts as anything has very vari- variations over time. Um, but eventually 
these get codified into what we know as the Egyptian books of the dead, like the papyrus of Ani. But it starts with just the pharaohs being able to do this. Yeah, interesting. Shane, uh, I know you had a question. Go ahead. How did the principles of alchemy and Freemasonry shape each other as they interacted? That's a good question. Um, so in the beginning, Masonry was a, a builder's guild. Um, what that means is they were building houses. They were building cathedrals. And it was very, it was still initiatory because everything in ancient times, there were rites of passage to enter you into something because you're leaving your old life behind and taking on this new life. And so there were already initiations in place for people becoming Masons. And they had these moral teachings about what the working tools symbolize, uh, how to use them in your character and things. But people started claiming they were Masons and they'd say, I can build, I'll build this cathedral for you cheaper than that guy. And then the cathedral would collapse on the inhabitants. Because of this happening they, in Masonry, these people are called Cowans and eavesdroppers. But because this started happening, King James, who was a Mason, gave the Masons, the Masonic fraternity, to the right to meet in secret. At that time, the only people who could meet in secret were the church and the king. So the Masons now have this right. And that made the Masonic Lodge become a hotbed for ideas that you couldn't necessarily say out loud in public. And some of those ideas were things about esoteric teachings, occult teachings. And we know that the, uh, like even once, once Masonry became speculative and it was no longer operative, they started letting in people who had nothing to do with building like Elias Ashmole, who was an antiquary. Um, they let in, um, uh, I believe Sir Robert Murray, I, I believe he got in, but he's an alchemist with, with the Royal Society. He was the court projector at Whitehall. But they started letting in these hermetic types. Uh, and this is when alchemy starts creeping in. Now, or, or not in and around the same time, there was something written called the Shaw Statutes, kind of like a, a, a code for Masons to, to live by. An analysis was performed of this Shaw statutes with the rules for, for Rosicrucians for how they should behave in, I believe it's in Sigmund Richter's True and Perfect Preparation. It's, they're very nearly identical. Clearly one was copying off the other. And the, the one that predates it is the rules for the Rosicrucians. And of course, Rosicrucians have always been into alchemy, been predisposed to alchemy. So it came in that way for sure. Now, when it when psychedelic alchemy started getting into masonry, if you read my book Angels in Vermilion, you'll see Ashmole is is involved with this red powder. He didn't call it a psychedelic, but he's involved with this red powder, trying to talk to angels. Robert Boyle, the first chemist who invented Boyle's Law, uh, I mean. He, he's looking for this red powder. We got to remember Isaac Newton is a member at this time. Probably the smartest man to ever live is a member at this time. And they're all preoccupied with drugs because, because of this red powder. And Sir Isaac Newton's research assistant 
was this de Sagulier, who became the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. He was also in charge of um, demonstrations, uh, alchemical demonstrate, not alchemical, scientific demonstrations at the Royal Society. And so he was a practicing alchemist, and he rewrote that Master Mason degree to make it um, very reflective of the Osiris myth, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of different scholars. Uh, and from there, alchemy changed it. I mean, it, it the way it looked changed. Um, the penalties, for example, in masonry, when we take our, our oaths, we're given penalties um, that are gruesome. And of course, they're not taken seriously because you're not saying that it's going to happen to you. It's more like you're inviting this thing upon yourself should you betray your obligation. But Timothy Hogan, he was the first person I know to to decode those penalties and show that step by step, it is a process for alchemical extraction. And those those penalties seem to predate some of this alchemical activity. So they 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 influenced one another after De Sagulier got into the lodge, but gradually alchemy became something different. It became, you know, people looking for a way to transmute base metals into gold. Now that, that trope had been there very early on, but for them, and I believe this for them, it was a metaphor uh, for transmuting baseline consciousness into illuminated consciousness or the way they would have said it, making a man, a God, but that that that's how how it got there. It was a very honest process, it, um, organic process. Interesting. Um, when we're talking about uh, all these the symbolism and esoteric stuff, so like now we know through science they can take um, metals and transmute them on very tiny scale into gold. Like, cause that's what most people think of when they think of philosopher's stone. Oh, it's, there's some ingredients or some sort of, um, compound that will turn anything into gold or whatever. Now we can do that with science on like a very tiny scale. Right. But I think it's clear for anybody that studies like alchemy and, um, these mystery schools and spirituality and stuff like that, that most likely what was happening is they were transmuting, via like you're saying like a psychedelic experience you know it's that's mm -hmm. really um you know being able to know that there's something more to life i think is far more um valuable than just gold right 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 and and you know that's a that's a classic technique with initiatory traditions to dangle the carrot. You know, you, that, that gold is the carrot that, that would bring in the lowest scoundrel and, and possibly transmute him into something more. I think that's part of the gold thing is to, 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 to allure people to it in the first place. And then once you get involved, you know, Young thought it was just about projection, psychological projection. That the because this there's a trope in alchemy that along with you know it's a laboratory process, and along with the perfection and creation of the philosopher's stone, 
the alchemist himself is perfected. Like they happen at the same time. Well, it's a lab process because they're making drugs and it happens at the same time because they get to use the drug when they're done. They put it in their body. But Jung thought it was simply psychological projection that these changes are happening in them by watching something happen in nature. There's no doubt that projection is absolutely a thing, but I don't think that's what's going on with alchemy. I think Jung's interpretation, as much as I love Jung and think he's verges on a prophet, um, I don't think he did alchemy an incredible service outside of collating a bunch of references and quotes that you really can't find. He, he did the same thing else. with UFOs. I mean, I love his book right. on UFOs, but he didn't come to a conclusion like they're physical or non-physical. They're just a manifestation of everything that was else that was going on in the world and kind of like a mirror of our own anxiety. But he doesn't actually say these are physical things or non-physical things or, you know, anything like that. Right. So it's kind of similar to what you're saying. Yeah. If you've seen a UFO, it's pretty freaking up close. You know, if you've seen one within 50 to a hundred yards away, it's pretty obvious. It's a thing. It's not a hallucination. And for anyone who's hallucinated as regularly as I have, um, you know, and I'm not saying I see UFOs all the time, but I've had one experience that was absolutely inexplicable and uh it was an it was an object you know i I didn't i didn't see anybody in it like there weren't windows i didn't see any you know quote unquote aliens but there was a thing that uh, was absolutely unexplainable you know and young's mind because it's a saucer because it's round it's a symbol of the self because the circle is in his system is the indicative of the self archetype, which is the, when you have incorporated all of your projections and kind of not identified with any one of them, but sort of transcended all of them into this round consciousness. But he completely ignores the, that the early ones were cylindrical. Like the one I saw was cylindrical, looked like a long, metal hot dog or something <laughs> like a tic-tac um <laughs> no longer, longer longer than a tic-tac couple tic-tacs yeah. um yeah the, the whole thing about young too is that um i take i take it a little i take what he wrote and said and i've applied it to my own philosophies i think there's a good possibility that what we're seeing when we see these things they are symbols or symbolic and our perceptions are just not evolved or our consciousness is not evolved to understand whatever that actually is. So we assign a value to it. Um, as a, something. Yeah. As opposed to what he's saying, which is he doesn't, it could be there. It could be not there. You know, like I think we take it a step farther and say, obviously people are seeing these things. Now is that thing, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe if we're talking dimensional thing, maybe we're only seeing a sliver. Maybe that's why they look different and there's different shapes and stuff like that because we're seeing different aspects of different crafts mm -hmm. from different dimensions, things like that. But just the the idea that we're assigning symbols to things that um, people have been experiencing for a long time, I think just makes sense to me. I'll take it a step further. Well, it, go, go ahead. I'll say that UFOs are assigning the symbols to us. They're, they're the ones doing that. Now, this is a topic that I like. I know Valet talks about that. I and yeah, Valet talks about that, that like fairies, all these different symbols throughout history that we keep getting, they're being assigned to it. I mean, they know what we like. So when we see them, just like my actually brings me to my question, uh, intersection between Freemasonry, ancient knowledge and 
possible, like Mac, as you would say, ancient knowledge from non-human intelligences. Have you ever heard or read anything about that? You mean like, like the Sitchin hypothesis and that kind of thing? I don't know what that is, but go with that. I think, I, th yeah, I think Shane's just saying, is there any evidence and kind of like what you've researched for UFOs, UAP? Is that correct? Is that what you were saying? They've come across knowledge from something that we would call abnormal uh, along the line, not necessarily UFOs. And um, we can apply that to anything. I'm saying paranormal in any way. Like they, have you ever come across anything like that? Like, or you would say almost a religious experience per se. You know what I mean? I'm not sure I follow uh, something in the past that that is comparable to a UFO. Yeah, like across, as you research, have you come across anything that's kind of, you know, with the ancient knowledge that with Freemasonry comes across, you know, there's a lot of that in there. Is there anything ever about that they've got this knowledge from other places that that maybe oh, different than normal? Do you need know what I mean? Uh, not in Masonry. Um now, you know, you'll get people who will lock in on like the Ark of the Covenant that shows up in the Royal Arch degree. And, um, but no, no, it's the, the, anything in Masonry is pretty predicated upon it came from God, basically. You know, it's a uh, Masonry purports to go back all the way to Adam, and he was the first Mason with the fig leaf, was the first Masonic apron, that kind of thing. That being said, okay, uh, let me get a little more in depth on it then, because for me, those are the two same things, God, that, whatever. So let me ask this. Are there any in Freemasonry symbols, things that you talk about do related to that that aren't in the Judeo-Christian Bible per se, like experiences with a angel? Well, you know, because uh, I understand what you're saying. It's a Christian thing, right? So I'm asking, are there anything that's outside of yes, that that they talk about they can receive knowledge? Yeah, actually, you're, aren't you not allowed to be Catholic or Christian if you're a Freemason? Is that true? No. Uh, oh, you're, okay. If you're Catholic, you can't be a Freemason. Right. Or you'll get excommunicated. But right. Masonry is open to men of... But they want you to believe in a higher power, right? Like, it's... it's, right. it's right. you Yeah, the all, or the uh, grand architect of the universe or something along those lines. You, you, you have to profess a belief in a supreme being. What you think or say that supreme being is masonry could care less are you allowed is, to is tell us why not why are you not allowed to be catholic is that or is that like a secret you can be catholic and be a freemason oh. you can't be a freemason and be catholic oh. church will communicate you got you got you yeah. all right Makes there's sense. no religion rejected uh, you know even masonry accepts buddhist which uh, it's arguable especially theravada buddhism that it's largely atheistic but but it's still. Do you know why the Catholic Church doesn't allow it? Is because it's they think it's like a heresy or something. There's a there's a um, there's an official edict you can read that the Pope wrote against Freemasonry. Um, I can get you a copy. The, the Scottish Rite has pamphlets of it, just so we can educate ourselves on what their claims are. Um, but it looks like that Freemasonry was lumped in with alchemy and the alchemy the pope spoke out of you know that's alchemy too you can't be an alchemist and be catholic um and it was largely because of um, the crimes of coining edward kelly he had his ears cropped for this crime of coining which is passing off adulterated metals as pure metals um 
being able to make something look like it's gold when it's really not. You know, and this, this, this problem goes way back to uh, um, Archimedes and you know, this getting in the bathwater and seeing the displacement. He, the whole reason he was, that was a big deal, the Eureka thing was a big deal, was because they couldn't figure out if this gold was real or not. So that, that's a problem that goes, goes way back. And that was wrapped up with this. Um, now, Shane, to answer your, your question about masonry, n- no, I, I don't think masonry has what you're looking for. But in the Rosicrucian society, that's another story. In the Rosicrucian society, there are direct references to what they call the holy ones and talking about, about um, being able to initiate communication with them, things like that. Actually, I'm writing that down. Thank you very much. That's, you answered my question. That's something I want to look up. It's um, it's fascinating. The rituals, um, I don't know if you'll find them published um, anywhere. I can't tell you what's in the rituals themselves, but I can tell you that, uh, I mean, that there's a there's a prayer that's uh, that I can say for certain where, where it's, you're praying for, the possibility that you'll get to communicate with the holy ones sounds uh sounds like shane's got a little project here actually i i just <laughs> looked it up i'm gonna enjoy this uh if you're if you're in here watching right now you need to look this up if you like ufos um so yeah this whole thing is is absolutely fascinating because i mean for a long time i've believed that psychedelic use and altered states of conscience consciousness are at the root of all metaphysics like i don't know how people would have come up with metaphysical ideas without um the help of an altered state because if you think about it walking around in your day-to-day consciousness you're not really on that level right yeah you can meditate but that's an altered state of consciousness yeah you can dream that's an altered state of consciousness you know what i'm saying so it's like for me, it just makes sense that all these things, uh, whether it's metaphysical stories from the Bible or esoteric works or um, you're talking about Freemasonry and all the, the, the symbolism and stuff like that, I think it just really all just makes sense. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, to go back to Young a little bit, um, myths, myths aren't, aren't created by men who say, I'm going to sit down and write a religion. If they do that, it's not going to work the way they think it's going to work. Myths thrust themselves upon man. We don't possess them. They possess us. Uh, when a myth emerges, it's all, it's all that can be true. That makes sense. Even the, even the Christ myth, the Christ teachings, what, would, what most people would call a myth, for the people who participated in that when that was emerging it wasn't like oh maybe this is true oh maybe i could believe this it it thrust itself upon them to such a degree that they couldn't deny it and uh, all real myths work that way Uh, and i think you know to call to call ufos a modern myth i think is problematic because number one more than one person sees ufos at a time they're filmed we have yet to catch a myth on film you know <laughs> there's something else going on with those I, I i just i have difficulty putting them in the same 
bracket, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's definitely a whole different, uh, thing. And I think that that's why it's so fascinating, uh, and why we're all kind of waking up to all these different things from trying to understand what consciousness is to trying to understand the psychedelic experience to trying to understand the UFO UAP experience. You know, these are all our, you know, you say modern myth, but they're more modern mysteries. Um, those are the things right now that we are like on the precipice of trying to figure out that will catapult us into the next paradigm uh, time period where we maybe get more information and live with these ideas and, and savor them a little bit more and then kind of figure out what the next batches after that so this this coming you know coming from the sky is a fairly new idea um is especially like in greek culture nobody was going up everybody was going down into the underworld you know at, at that time the gods lived on mount olympus man lived in the middle and the spirits of the dead lived in the underworld you the kabiri you have uh those are those are rites and um it's it's a mystery tradition but right. but the they they were underworld figures like they came out of stones and out of caves right um but it, you know you look at uh parmenides you look at pythagoras um empedocles all these early pre-socratic pre-plato people are going to the underworld it isn't until plato comes and allegorizes that trip to the underworld and says no we actually fall from up there and that fall that we have fallen to Hades. This is Hades. There's no further going down. We're at the bottom. So the only way to go is up. That's a platonic idea in the West. Before that, everybody was going into the underworld. And that's true even in, um, in Native American. But uh, So that's why you have... Okay the with the Eleusinian mysteries and Demeter and Persephone that's why that's pre Plato so that's why you have them descending into the underworld with right. you know yeah, right. the agrarian cults yeah. and the symbolism and everything it goes back to Ishtar in ancient Babylon Ishtar she's the planet Venus uh, and Venus because it's it's an internal planet like Mercury it doesn't have a regular orbit like the other planets do where they rise in the east go over the ecliptic and set in the west Venus rises in the east and then dips down and disappears in the underworld and then rises in the west and dips down. So she creates these horns, which is the, the bull horns, which is one of her symbols. But Ishtar is the myth of this. She descends into the underworld um, in order. She's trying to take the throne from her, her sister, Arishkigal. She fails miserably, but she gets back out. And that's the thing. Nobody gets back out. Um, that's why you have to have a psychopomp to get in and out, um, which is the role of uh, Bobo or Hecate in the Eleusinian Mysteries. She's the one who can get Persephone out of the underworld. But um, yeah, everybody's going down. Uh, in the Native American traditions, there's only a couple of tribes that I know of that claim to have come from the stars, the skies. Um, I think the Ojibwe are one of them. But the rest of them all emerged from the middle of the earth. They came out of caves here in Mississippi. There's a um, Naniwea cave, which is where the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, they claim to have, when they emerged, they came out of this cave. And I find that more fascinating than, than, the, than the, a 
ascension motifs going going down. Um, the they would represent this trip by, by what we would recognize as swastikas. These file fought crosses show up all over Mississippian iconography, and the they represent whirlpools, the, a way to go down. And when they tested these uh, these vessels with mass spectom spec 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 spectrometers spectrometry <laughs> when they when they did those tests they tested positive for detura um, probably one of the most potent underworld drugs uh, it's associated with the moon it looks like the moon they bloom under the moon and for ancient americans north americans particularly in the southeast they had this idea that the sky turns like the whole thing turns so underground when it when it's daytime all of the stars are under us and the moon is under us but when nighttime happens they flip and the underworld comes on top so anything at night is the underworld emerged come out and that's what they were using this stuff for the same the same descent purposes there are these two hero twins that show up a lot and uh they these same hero twins show up in the papal vu and and mexicans and uh, central american religion but they their their father is the the god of the above world kind of like zeus and he he goes to battle with these underworld spirits, basically the Titans, and the Titans win. The, the, this version, the, the, the Titans beat him, cut his head off, and bury his head beneath this, uh, this ball court. It's not a kind of like the mind ball game, but it's not a ball they used in North America. It was kind of, it's something called a discoidal. It's a disc, a stone disc that they would roll like a wheel and throw spears at it called chunky sticks. But his head was buried beneath this. And you'll see lots of images of people carrying severed heads in the iconography of the Mississippians. There's this man, Birdman, one of the, the prime figures you see um, from Cahokia and shows up in Etowah. But it's this Birdman with a beak and he's holding a severed head. Well, archaeologists are finding these, these head pots, these head, human head effigy pots. And when they tested the this one recently that i just read about um i think it was found in the central arkansas valley i think um it tested positive for datura so it, it's like that that head in the ground in the underworld um, putting your head in the underworld with this datura very prevalent and the the book i have i've got i've got two books coming out with um inner traditions the second one is uh, on on this native american uh, shamanism particularly in the mississippi valley um you're familiar with burial mounds um yeah the the burial we mounds, did a whole uh slideshow episode with dr gregory little where he walked us through pretty much all okay. of the main ones in the u.s yeah, yeah. That well, the, these <clears throat> burial mounds and effigy mounds were built by the earlier Hopewell and Adena and Poverty Point cultures, but they would be abandoned and then reestablished by different groups of people. And eventually, 
what we call the Mississippian culture came and started turning them into something more. They started turning them into these big platform mounds that look like like truncated pyramids. And they really are. They have four sides to them, flat top. And uh, the um, monk's mound, it's called, in, uh, in Cahokia, is actually the same dimensions as the Great Pyramid at Giza. And it's larger than the, than the Pyramid at Teotihuacan in Mexico. But they're basically these pyramid structures. And I got, a, I got, so I got my hands on some archeological reports. Um, some of them weren't published and it was these unpublished ones that really blew my mind with this stuff, but they recovered botanical assemblages that when they broke them down and started studying them, there's, of course, there's plenty that are foods, you know, that the, they're eating, but there are lots of plants that are drugs and these plants tend to be all in the same locations um, and these drugs are are nicotiana rustica which is a, a very potent form of tobacco it's about nine to 13 times more potent than commercial tobacco they would have datura um, black nightshade which is um, solanum ticanthum um, which contains scopolamine just like datura uh, and they would have morning glory seeds. Uh, morning glory seeds have um, LSA in them. They, it, they don't make it, the plant doesn't produce it naturally. Uh, there's this ancient you know, symbiotic relationship between um, a claviceps type fungus and two strains of morning glory, the heavenly blue strain, which is Ipomoea tricolor, and then the um, Corambosa Rivera, Riviera, uh, what the Mexicans called Oliluqui. Um, and Richard Evan Schultz wrote a book on that and identified it as this other species of psychedelic morning glory. But they had these seeds of morning glory. And there's at least two different scholars that believe they were combining all of them into this one really psychedelic brew because they find them together all the time. Uh, but what, one, one of the things that no archaeologist has noted, and I think it's because they don't know this, is that it, they appear to be using an ayahuasca analog. Now, ayahuasca is, of course, South American beverage made from two different plants containing one containing DMT, one containing monoamine oxidase inhibitor to cause a very, very intense, visually rich psychedelic experience. Well, two of the plants that they keep recovering from these areas are Gladitia triacanthos, which is also known as Acacia americana. The acanthos, that aca in there, actually is a it's a it's a conjugation of Acacia triacanthos. So those are present, and it's only there's only been one person to assay this that I know of. It's a keeper of the trout, um, keeper trout and keeper of the trout. You'll see people write it different, but he wrote a book on, I think it's called some, yeah, some simple tryptamines where he assayed all these different plants trying to find out if they had DMT in them or not, uh, in other drugs. But this tree came up positive and it was from reading that, that we started experimenting with that tree. And sure enough, it is incredibly potent. 
and alongside it are assemblages of passion flower, Passiflora incarnata, which is our native source of MAOI. You combine them, and like I said, there's already two scholars that think they are combining all of them. But if you combine them, the result is what I call misahuasca. I call it the misahuasca hypothesis. Uh, it's incredible, increasingly probable that they were doing this. And even if, let's say, they weren't combining it with passion flower, which the passion flower is there, so they probably were. But they they have this beverage they drink called black drink that's made from yaupon, yaupon holly. It's Ilex vomitoria. When, when DeSoto's people arrived in Florida, they observed the natives. Every other day or every two days, they would have this ritual where the women would brew up the leaves from a yaupon tree into this thick black tea that they would then fill these massive lightning whelk shells with from the Gulf of Mexico and use this as a ceremonial cup. The shell for them is a symbol of the underworld. The underworld God um, brought them shells as a gift along with copper. So they drink this out of these shells and vomit over and over. Drink it and vomit. Drink it and vomit. Well, that's so it was because of this description that botanists gave it the name Ilex vomitoria, the Ilex that makes you vomit. We found specific, it only grows in like one place in the whole country, and it's right here where I live. And so we got the leaves, we roasted them, and we, we were like, oh, let's see what's a, what the deal is with this. It got us so wired that we couldn't believe how strong it was. It's full of caffeine. It's the only native source. What is it? This is passion flower? No, no, no. Ilex vomitoria. Oh, Yalpon. Okay. okay. Yalpon holly. So the it's it's related to yerba mate in South America. Yeah, don't those that's but what the football or soccer or whatever you want to call it players drink. They drink it like during the middle of matches. They have these like little cups with like a little like metal yeah. Uh, metal, straw, metal yeah. straw. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they, these guys were drinking it out of whelk shell shells. Well, we drank and drank and drank and we couldn't make ourselves vomit. We were expecting, we, you know, we were ready. We had our buckets and, and nothing. So I thought, man, that, well, they're wrong about this. There's got to be something else that they're putting in there. And of course, ayahuasca is not one of its, epithets is la purga the purge because it makes you vomit over and over when you drink it and it's noted in like two or three different ethnological reports that there are secret plants that are unknown to white men that they put in this black drink i think this is that's those secret plants i think it's this blend of or either individual um datura nightshade morning glory seeds tobacco and then this misahuasca. Now, even if, like I said, even if they weren't using the passion flower, tobacco works as an MAOI. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, what do you mean, like any, t- any tobacco or like wild tobacco? Well, I, I don't know if commercial tobacco is strong enough. As uh, as I don't know if the compounds in it that work as monoamine oxidase inhibitors are concentrated enough in commercial tobacco. I was talking they with somebody, using, what about like St. John's wort too? Uh, 
St. John's wort is not an MAOI. It's not. You'll see reports that say it is. Yeah. No, it's not. And it cannot be mixed with an MAOI. Mm. So if you're listening, don't take those things together. Don't take passion flower and St. John's wort. Your brain will hate you for it. Ooh. Um, but they have the, so the tobacco works as a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and recent publication showed that Ilex vomitoria has monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Uh, so if they were putting the Acacia Americana in this at all, which it looks like they were, it's not a good wood to build with. It's covered in thorns, um, big patches that can here. I've got, I've got one right here. This is, a. This is just one thorn, and they. This is one from. They stick out in clusters. You can barely touch the tree. Yeah, that this thing is a looks passion like flower it pod. Really hurt you. <laughs> yeah, the the pod on it is a passion flower pod that I've just kind of. Where's the passion flower indigenous yeah. to? Here, it grows all over. So every. Yeah, yeah, but like where in the United States is it? Different species grow all over, but okay. the ones we get here grow in. Uh, they grow on like every fence line out in the country mississippi tennessee georgia florida they grow in alabama um i was going to ask you too what about doing like an maoi with psilocybin would that do anything oh yeah oh yeah um oh yeah but the my, in my experience maoi at least triples the effects of psilocybin you can take two grams and it will be like you took six or seven grams Damn. um the caveat, though, for me is that it some for some reason it cuts off the visuals. I mm. don't get I don't get visuals when I mix them, but I but my headspace is so much beyond what I'm usually comfortable with. The first time I did did um, Paganum harmala with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, I was living in Tupelo, Mississippi, in an apartment. And I don't usually talk about my experience because I don't, but I'll tell you this one. My ceiling opened up and there were, I, I couldn't see them, but I knew they were there. There were these 12 gods made out of stone that were kind of lean over. They were looking at me and I knew in that moment that I was being judged, that they were trying to determine whether or not I could be, whether or not it would be a good idea to put me in a position to where I could help other people. As funny as that sounds, they were like, we don't, we got to figure out if we can even use you. Um, and it was so overwhelming. I was, uh, I couldn't move. I mean, I was crushed under this, the weight of these gods, but it's, it, it definitely works. Um, the passion flower alone, just like, uh, just like Paganum harmala, it's active if you take enough of it. My wife and I's first experience with passion flower, we read about it, found out that it was a MAOI, and we were driving and saw it all over this fence post. We were on our way to go have dinner at this Thai restaurant. So I picked all these flowers and I stuffed them in my pockets, and we went in there and we're sitting here waiting on our food, and I pulled the flowers out, and we just were like, okay, let's try it. So we started eating. I'd eat one and she'd eat one. I'd eat one, she'd eat one. And I don't remember how many we ate, but eventually by the time our food came, both of us were asleep <laughs> or asleep on the table. Uh, it was so, 
dreamy and just uh, with a slight nausea, a slight kind of sickness to it. But Pagan Harmala does that to me too. I think it's just the nature of the harmaline alkaloids. They, they do something rough on your stomach. But it's but the passion flower, you know, we took to making changa with it, changa they call it some places uh, that's what my friend khalil calls it uh, shout out to khalil in australia I'm wearing your your shirt khalil they call it changa uh, we in mississippi call it changa but we would make it with passion flower uh, and it's a great smoking herb and i think it's got a history of being a smoking herb in mexico uh yeah no that's that's super fascinating uh, yeah, no, I was just curious. I've never mixed that. I've mixed, obviously, psilocybin with other psychoactive compounds, but uh, I was just curious of the effects. And to your point, though, you know, what's weird is in the past, I mean, I've done psilocybin a lot, especially when I was younger, uh, but the when I would smoke cannabis or vape or whatever, um, it would also take away my visuals, but then sometimes it would like reignite them too. It's like a weird thing where it could either help or hurt the situation. But I'll tell you one thing, alcohol will take away, um, the effects of psilocybin 100% that I have yeah, observed. Yeah. 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 I've noticed that too. Alcohol, um, it, it doesn't seem to do anything to LSD, but mushrooms, it absolutely quells the effect. I've heard it does with peyote too. You see two different factions of, of natives that, that use peyote. One faction will say that the, the peyote spirit loves alcohol and it only works with us so long as we drink beer or liquor because it's trying to get the beer and liquor that through us. There's another faction that says that's absolutely wrong. You do not mix the two they are two different paths you know um and, and i know i've got a friend in north carolina that likes to mix maoi with mescaline and he claims it's it's one of the most incredibly beautiful experiences interesting he mixes it with san pedro yeah um yeah it's something i definitely probably sometime in the future uh give a whirl um but yeah, so I mean, as far as the MAOIs, you would have to probably go with like a Paganum, Harmala, or, or Syrian Rue, or uh, Passion Flower. Um, we do, so we do, when I make Missahuasca, which I, I, I was making this before I knew about the burial mounds thing, so that it, it just kind of dovetailed. But when we make it, we find that 10 to 12 grams of Gladitia triacanthos root bark and 25 to 30 grams of passion flower is is right about the sweet spot yeah that's interesting um so d did you ever do anything with that thing i sent you that paper about uh because you remember the, all the reports of like uh that pompeii site uh that was featured in immortality key and then some of those other uh, sites had lizard tails in those vats with all those mm -hmm. entheogens. And I sent you that paper about how lizard tails have psychoactive compounds in them. And you were doing that whole thing with, is it Hecate or Hecate or whatever? Hecate, yeah. Hecate. Hecate. Um, so we were talking about animated statues earlier. Um, 
one of the most famous examples of statue animation is from the Neoplatonist Proclus, who was able to animate a Hecate statue that he made smile and torches light up behind her. Um, but remember, these things happen in vision, visions, not actually happening. And a good, uh, she tells us this in the, in the Chaldean Oracles, which is a, kind of like a, a Bible for the Neoplatonists. It's a, a text that was received by this father-son team called the Giuliani. Um, and they claim to have received it from the spirit of Plato. So Plato's soul comes to them, dictates to them this message from Hecate and from uh, Apollo. I think one claim is that Apollo is involved, which these are the two main gods of divination in ancient Greece. The very last fragment of the Chaldean Oracles, fragment 224, I think, is uh, instruction on how to animate a Hecate statue. And it's the very first thing it says is you have to construct the statue using savage rue. Now, savage rue goes back to Pliny the Elder. Um, he calls it savage rue or wild rue in his natural history. And he's commenting on the difference in common rue and savage rue. Common rue is what we know, ruta graviolens. It's what's used... It, 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 at one point, it was used to fling holy water in the Catholic Church. It's a. It has a benedictive kind of air about it um, the romans would add it to wine for to to increase the bouquet but he says that that savage rue and common rue are the same thing the only difference is we've cultivated it to this point that it's useful but he says the savage rue is even though it's used as a medicine and it helps with melancholy, he says uh, that it causes sweating, opens the pores, and that if you take too much of it, it's a poison and you'll die. And it's it's been agreed since uh, since the 16, 15, 1600s um, is when they start saying that Savage Rue is Paganum Hormala, identifying it as Paganum Hormala. Um, and she's saying to construct her statue using this. And then she says to decorate the statue with lizards that you find about the house, meaning, I guess, house geckos. But there, uh, there's a report you can find. Look up uh, lizard intoxication in India. And there's this report of a man who is addicted to these 10 to 20 lizards a day. He smokes and eats. He catches them and he's an opiate addict and he claims it makes the opium so much stronger when he takes the lizards. And the, the report is a medical report. They're saying they don't understand what's in there. But whenever you're talking about in, uh, in, uh, it's in Italy where they discovered these, what's called dolia, these big vats of wine that were in a temple of Persephone, Hecate, and Demeter, i.e. an Eleusinian-style temple. And when they tested the residues, they found that it had uh, opium in there, and they found evidence of, uh, I believe, Paganum Harmala, uh, Harmala alkaloids. But even if they hadn't of, they next to the vat was this huge pile of lizard remains bones and from these lizards that they apparently were adding to this potion now there's a, a king named mithradates 
and he was obsessed with these elixirs of long life. And he had this one elixir that he took that he was named after him. The pronunciation and, and the spelling is escaping me. It's something like Mithratateum or something like that. But they found a recipe for this, uh, the ingredients, and it called for specifically said savage rue in it, which again would be Paganum Harmala. Now we know like the Bufo, it's no longer Bufo Alvarius, it's been reclassified, but the Colorado Colorado River toad that produces 5-MeO DMT. I mean, those things exist. They don't exist anywhere outside of the Colorado River in that region. But that doesn't doesn't mean there wasn't one at one time. You know, Bufo alvarius toad is is endangered right now due to, you know, people say over harvesting. It's not over harvesting. It's due to us completely taking over their habitat, building roads and things like that. And there were no, there was no shortage of roads in Rome. So, I mean, if something like that can affect uh, the population to the point of extinction, I could see how there was probably some kind of European toad or lizard that was possessed of. What about uh, possibly? What about the fact that lizard tails, um, you know, regrow? There could be some sort of yeah, biological maybe. thing that has something to do with, tied to that mechanism how you know these things can reproduce that i mean that there's obviously a lot of weird endogenous things happening at that point that maybe some lizards have um, ca- um ca- catharone i think it's called catharone yeah. the same thing that's in in uh you in beetles yeah yeah you um Spanish fly. It's that that Indian fly. guy. I think I read that too. The the it was like a spiny lizard or something. It was like a desert lizard. It was the guy that you're spiny tailed lizard. But, yeah, yeah. But there they find them in the house. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, it's a. It, that's in the recipe. It says lizards found about the house, and in the India report, it says spiny tailed lizards that are common in the houses, people's houses. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's 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 very fascinating, you know. I, I think there's something to it. I wanted and, to bring and, I wanted to bring something ahead. to your attention. So we were doing like a Twitter space a while ago. It was like a UFO Twitter space. Um and this lady, she was from Greece. Um and we were talking, I was joking around. I'm like, "Oh, you know, you guys know about psychedelics over there with the Eleusinian mysteries." And she's like, "Yeah." She's like, "We've been doing that forever." Um and then we started talking and I mean, she was, she, you know, she lives there. She's from there. She knows all about it. But um I said something like, "Oh, so do you think it was, you know, ergot or claviceps purpurea or whatever?" And she goes, "No." She goes, "It was mushrooms." I go, "What do you mean?" She goes, "The the ancient greek word for one grape or a single grape is the same as mushroom i'm like oh that's interesting i haven't really done too much research to follow up on that but uh, mushrooms grow everywhere i don't see why that couldn't be the case yep um have you read uh carl ap ruck's book sacred mushrooms of the goddess yeah i've read ruck's I've read that. I've read Road to Eleusis and The Immortality. They're key. different conclusions, you know. Road right, to right. Eleusis is the ergot right. conclusion, but in, in Sacred Mushrooms, he he's proposing that it was um, was probably Amanita muscaria or some some psilocybin mushroom. And Matthew Clark thinks it's um, an ayahuasca analog as well. At Eleusis. Yeah, because I mean, Peganum harmala is prevalent in that whole area, so. 
Um, right. I mean, you're, you're familiar with Benny Shannon's speculative hypothesis, uh, right? Biblical entheogens. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that rabbi guy that's uh, researching. He, he's not a rabbi. He's, he's, oh, he's a not? professor of psychology at Hebrew University in Israel. Okay. Now but I know proposed, what you're talking about. Yeah. He proposed, yeah, there's Paganum harmologros there. And um, against the earlier person's claims who you said said there were no active acacias out there acacia senegal is out there and there's another one that's out there that benny Shannon mentions in the paper that are, are active uh and he's basically saying that moses could have combined these two things but he doesn't have any real proof i i, I first time i read that paper i thought this is r- ridiculous i'm going to rebut this but as soon as i started trying i realized he 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 doesn't he goes very very light into it. I don't know how deep he pursued his speculative hypothesis, but when I started looking at it, Moses, his, his first experience with the burning bush, that's what he claims the burning bush was, was some kind of either was a vision from the psychedelics or this bush was the psychedelic. And that's what he hints at. And so I started pursuing that the, the burning bush correlation well the word in the hebrew text and obviously isn't burning bush it's leba sena and these two words appear nowhere else in the bible they're unique to this one verse he saw leba sena leba means ensouled just like we said animated it means like it's glowing from a life inside of it a light is inside of it Sena, there are two definitions for Sena. One is acacia. This is, you can look at um, biblical Hebrew dictionaries. Look up Sena. It says it's acacia. The second definition is a tamarisk, a rock thorn, which is a thorny small plant that looks like acacia, but in miniature form. So he saw an ensouled acacia. I thought, well, that that's very significant. So I reached out to a rabbi in Memphis that, that I'm friends with. And I said, what do you think about this? And he said, well, the word leba, you know, if we have this problem, we go to the etymology of the word and try and see where the the earlier, the root of the word shows up. And he says, the root of leba is lebab, which means um, thorn means a sharp point on something like a thorn or a spear. I thought, well, what, you know, are, is this possible that this, that he's right? And he said in, in Santa, he said that the, that from ancient rabbinical tradition, Santa is, is seen as a phonetic anagram of Sinai. They're not spelled the same, but they're almost pronounced the same. So he says, the fire on the bush is the same as the fire on the mountain that Moses viewed. So it, it's very possible, you know, that this is what's being said in this kind of encoded form. Now, when Moses went up on Sinai, the children of Israel, the first thing they did was said, he's not coming back. They called his brother Aaron. They said, Aaron, he's not coming back. He's been up there for days. Do us a favor, take all of our gold and melt it down 
and form it into a bull for us. Make us a, a calf we can worship. And he does this, right? I don't, how would he do this? I mean, if he's already invested in what Moses is doing, but he does it. And when Moses comes back down from the mountain and sees this, do you, do you remember what happens at this point? What he made them do with the calf? Yeah, I mean, he made them throw it away. I mean, they were all like debaucherous and didn't they, he made them destroy it or something? He made them grind it into a powder, oh. mix it with water and drink it. Interesting. He made them drink it. Yeah, because remember what we said earlier about animated statues. Right. Well, I was going to say with the whole burning bush thing, I, I mean, I've talked to a few people the idea of it burning and then inhaling it or whatever and getting high off the DMT obviously is not, that's, there's no way there's, it's not potent enough to create that kind of effect. Uh, so it would have to be, you already in that state seeing a bush burning, right? Like that's the misconception with that whole idea. I think you have, you know, like Rogan and a couple other people talk about, you know, they were literally like smoking the bush or the bush was smoking or what, you know, whatever, but it's, it's actually, they were already, yeah. I think he got in that state because he was Egyptian. He grew up in Egyptian circles. He was close to royalty. Now, in ancient Egypt, like you said, Osiris gets reassembled. At the Osiris festival, they would bake body parts, like bread in the shape of body parts, these cakes, and hide them. And people would find them and reassemble them and then eat it in a feast. But the priests, they didn't participate in this. They had their own form of bread that was in this, and it's in the exact shape of the hieroglyph for thorn. They look like triangles. And they would keep it in this big box that, even in Budge, he says it's a box of some kind of red wood. Now this box has poles that run on each side. And during the festival, they carry it around and say the God is in this box, that the we're parading around Osiris, the deity. That's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the same way the Ark of the Covenant is built. There's even a, the, a, an image of the deity is on top of the box. When Moses gives them the instruction about the Ark of the Covenant, he says, you have to make it from acacia. You have to make the poles from acacia. That's the only way to do this. And then he says, you have to house it out in the desert, we got to make this cool place. We got a cool box. Now we need a cool place to keep it. And they keep create the tabernacle out there. And it's made out of acacia with everything about it is made out of acacia. And then he says, cover the acacia in gold. Remember that golden calf formed. You don't pow- I mean, he, it says he heated it and then powdered it, grounded into a powder. My suspicion is that these are solar signatures. In alchemy, you have something called signatures, where like gold has the signature of the sun. Acacia has the signature of the sun. The thorns are the light, the rays coming off. What they're doing is making an animated statue, is what I believe. Um, the golden bull, the golden calf, isn't they didn't just make this up. That's an ancient Egyptian deity. It's the Apis bull. It goes back to, it's the oldest deity worshipped in Memphis. Whenever Osiris became the main deity worshipped, he was still called Apis Osiris. 
Apis means honey bull, honey, honey bee. So it's a bull that's somehow a, a honey bee. And that honey, that's that, that solar signature. They do the same thing with the acacia. They, the, these, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, they co coat it in gold and then they hide within it manna. You know, I know of at least three different interpretations of manna that are very, very strong arguments that identify it as something psychoactive. Um, but I think that's yeah, what so this is. I think manna thing, was exposed to this. Do you make the connection of, I've heard other people talk about like manna and mushrooms. Um, this idea that they're wandering through the desert eating, you know. It says it grew grows on the ground with, with the morning, with the dew, right? right? With the hoarfrost. So they come in the morning in the same way that mushrooms sprout. And if you don't pick them in time, they breed worms and stink. I mean, this classic mushroom description. Um, he says that they're the size of a coriander seed, which is a good description of a pin, the when they first sprout. Uh, but then there's uh, another researcher that wrote uh, The Mysteries of Mana. Mystery of Mana. He passed away in 2016. Um, Daniel Merker, Dan Merker, brilliant scholar. He argues that it's ergot, and he makes some pretty good arguments. One of the arguments I put in my first book, Alchemically Stone, talking about the threshing floor, because the Masonic temple is built on a threshing floor. When I read that, I thought, Why do, where do I know that from? And I, I knew the threshing floor reference from Road to Eleusis, where there's the threshing floor of Triptolemus, where they would ceremonially separate the ergot from the barley, according to Ruck, Wasson, and Hoffman's hypothesis, which I think is strong. Well, the... King Solomon's temple was meant to be on large scale, a reproduction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It says this specifically in the first degree in Freemasonry, but modern scholars agree that the tabernacle probably didn't exist. And it's a projection into the past of King Solomon's temple. And Merker says, so it's very, if it's an exact replica, like they say, then it's very possible that the, that the tabernacle was built on a threshing floor. If you look at numbers, there's something Merker calls the drought ordeal, where these two women are accused of adultery. And the priests take dust from the floor of the tabernacle, mix it with water, just like with that bull, and have the woman drink it. And they tell her that if she's guilty, that she will be punished by God. And that punishment will be that her belly will swell up and that her thigh will rot off. Like, like, like gangrene from Ergot. Gangrene. Yeah. Right. And Merker immediately, he said, this is, this is Ergot poisoning that they're talking about. So, but, so, so we have Ergot, we, we have Ergot all over the place. We have proof from chalices, from the Elucidian Mysteries. We have, you know, we had dental calculus of, of den the, dental. We had Leah on the other night. She said the first recorded, um, uh, thing is from Germany in the 800s, I believe, 800 AD, somewhere around there. Uh, first, like recorded modern um, experience. So we have all this ergot. How do we convert that, or how is that converted? Then um, I know there's a clip online of Terence McKenna talking about the Eleusinian mysteries, um, and you know he thinks it's mushrooms because you have the ingredients and it's like barley 
mint and something else and waters on there. And he says waters and actually an augum. It's not really uh, water, but you would replace that with you know the ergot or the the fungus from the wheat or the barley or whatever um but then you know he's talking about you know he again he thinks it's mushrooms but then he's talking about how they would like since it's boiling that maybe you'd sift off some of the top or maybe that would get rid of some of the um neurotoxic chemicals or and and some of the newer editions of road to elusis there's an uh, appendix at the end by i think his name's peter webster where he tries to reproduce this it's been so long since i read it but um, I can't remember if he was successful or not. That's one place to look. Um, I have, I have friends working with this and trying to get to the bottom of it. And the two methods that they think are the most promising are a, a simple cold water extraction because the others, the, the negative, the bad toxins aren't water soluble. That there's evidence for that. They haven't tried it yet. They're, they're doing all the testing first. But um, the other method that they mentioned was oil, soaking it in oil. And, and the possibility of the, the proper stuff not floating to the top, not uh, something like that. I'm not a, I'm not a chemist yeah but there are people right now working with this trying to get to the bottom of it amanda fielding um the countess with uh beckley foundation oh i know amanda fielding uh who else would i I got to meet her who else would trepan their own head (laughs) oh right she's she's one of my heroes hold on let me pull up a um, bigger balls than any man on this planet here we go this is from elusis um hold on a second let me get these names off of here um, so here you have the wheat on the left. What do what do you think that that flower in the middle is symbolizes? Um, you know, it just, it, it would be purely speculative if I was to even offer something. The top kind of re- resembles, um, the nodes on the top of a poppy pod. And we do see Demeter or Persephone one. You see, you see scholars identify her. It is both, um, holding snakes, poppies, and wheat and of course poppies aren't going to induce an experience like what we read in the Eleusinian mysteries sweating and visions and terror um but the to the right of it does look kind of like a a vat of right, sorts, which right. looks like a dole whether well, the vats that they would brew that wine in like we talked about earlier dolia yeah it does look like that and there's also something called the kiste in the Eleusinian mysteries which is they, at the culmination of the rite, they would open this box, take whatever is inside of it out, and then put it back in and close it. We don't know what, nobody ever revealed what that was. So we don't know what was in the keystay, but it's supposed to be part and partial to whatever this mystery is. Now, just because you went through the Eleusinian mysteries didn't mean that you knew how to make the kikion. That was the priestly knowledge, you know. So that was something kept secret. And the the women made the the women made the kekion, correct? Um, it it had to be prepared by a woman, and that's the case with most of these brews, like with the black drink with Native Americans. Um, You ever had a chicha? Oh yeah. What? Oh, by the way, what? Because we just did the history of psychedelics, and that was the last one on the table, the chronological table. And I knew it was Native American, but what is black drink? 
real quick before we continue. It's that Yalpan holly. Um, so they, it's that black tea that they would drink out of shells. It's loaded with caffeine, but it won't make you vomit like that. Now, like I said, they drink it out of these shells. Well, it's Spiro, Oklahoma, which is one of the largest Mississippian cities. They found hundreds of these shells buried in, in all of these different areas. Um, Sean Lambert recently led a team that did analysis of these and the residues were positive for Datura. So they were mixing now the other alkaloids that they're not as stable as the Datura alkaloids. So the it's questionable if there would even be evidence of things like DMT or LSA still present in the cups. But the residue for Datura absolutely was present. So black drink, it looks like the Ilex vomitoria, the Yalpon, is, is a base. It's the base that's used in all the different blends. But depending on what you want to do with it, you add different ingredients. And there's a this fantastic scholar named F. Kent Riley III. He, he, so he, he says that each of these different cups, he's, they have different images carved on them, different icons. And each of these icons correspond to different places on the Milky Way, which the Milky Way, just like in Egypt, is the path called the path of souls that the dead person has to walk to get to the afterlife. And there are trials along the way. These trials are represented on these cups. So he proposes that each, the cup determined what was in it, what they were drinking out of it. And that, that, there, that these were like degrees. So you would go through the first degree, excuse me, and you're basically going through the path of souls nominally, ritually, uh, by drinking the substance that's meant to propel you into the region where this deity exists. This, they don't call them deities. The archaeologists like to call them supernaturals or, or non-human entities. But uh, he believes that it's a different substance for each one. There's something similar in Spyro where in the Grand Mortuary, it's, it's meant to set up, the arch is meant to be the Milky Way and different um, flint clay pipes stone effigies of pipes of different non-human entities are placed in this in the, in the order that they appear in the milky way and the same idea is true with this that smoking through it a animated the piece meaning it, it brought the deity in in your presence by smoking pulling smoke through it and that there were different smokes for each one I think there's probably something to that. Um, they had very complex systems of, of psychedelics. They weren't just using plants. Ethnological reports suggest that. Um, so when, when we see them drinking the Datura, it's always associated with a moth. This moth deity. They, they call it Mothra after the Godzilla scene, or they call it Mothman after the movie. But that's nice. what they call this, this figure. And this moth has been identified as uh, what's called a tobacco moth. Um, Manduca sexta is the the scientific classification. It lays its eggs 
and feeds only on tobacco and datura. So they associate it directly with these. Now, nicotine is normally toxic for insects and animals. But for the horn, tobacco hornworm, when it's a centipede, uh, not a, when it's a caterpillar, somehow it doesn't hurt it. Not only that, it not only does it not kill him when he eats nicotine, he has the ability to store it in his body and eject it at will as a defense mechanism. And there, there's in an ethnological report where they're telling a legend about uh, those two twins I was telling you about earlier. Um, the sun god is trying to determine if they're actually his twins, actually his kids. And so not necessarily the sun god, the god of the above world, we'll say. And as a, as a test, he tells them that they have to first go find this caterpillar. And they, they, he says, you'll recognize him because he, he pukes out blue stuff. And he says, you each need to take one of these and put it in your mouth and don't swallow the juice, but spit it out when it happens, just like chewing tobacco. They're letting these caterpillars spit up straight nicotine in their mouths. And after they pass this test, he says, okay, you've passed this one. Now I'm going to give you the, the tobacco that kills. The tobacco that kills being the other plant that this moth feeds on, the datura. And they pack a huge pipe of datura and smoke it, and it doesn't kill them. So he determines these are definitely my kids. So they ha there, there's this idea of if you can survive this, you're divine in a way. Um, but very complex system of initiation, uh, systems of intoxication. And the, the, one of the pots that tested positive for Datura, it's, uh, it's got a, a, a design on it that shows up in lots of different places, but it wasn't until they figured out that of the, about this relationship and what this moth was, that they realized the design on the pot is the proboscis of the moth that it uses to drink the nectar from datura or tobacco. And there's images of, of chunky players, that game we were talking about, holding these moths, like big ones by their proboscis, holding it up. Well, when, when, well, when a monarch, for example, as a caterpillar, it feeds on milkweed. Milkweed is toxic. It's not toxic for them. And what it does is it makes them toxic to other things. Even by the time it becomes a butterfly, it retains those toxins in its constitution. It's possible that those moths were psychoactive and that they were maybe eating the moths. We don't know. But I traveled to Arizona to see the, the deer glyph, uh, deer petroglyphs out there. The design on these moths is carved on these rocks. I mean, I'll send you the pictures so you, you can see how close this is. Underneath every single pictograph at Deer Park, we found growing either Datura or Tobacco obtusifolia. Now, I thought, what are the odds of this? I mean, it must be native. It must just grow all over. So Jamie, Paul, Lamb, and I, we walked the some 11 acres around this property looking for a single specimen of either plant. We couldn't find one. Now I spoke with a botanist. I said, what are the chances that these plants were planted there and just grow back every year? And he said, Oh, that's absolutely possible. They drop their seeds and they grow in the same places over and over and over. 
He says, it's very possible they were planted there. Well, I started researching this and I found an article um, written by these archaeologists who were studying um, a stretch of petroglyphs um, in New Mexico. And underneath every, it's a specific like jagged toothed looking symbol, the same kind of jagged symbol that shows up on the moth wings in their depictions in the Southeast. They said under every single petroglyph like that, they found datura or tobacco. That I don't think that's a coincidence. What about... Uh, I, uh, I cover all this in the new book. Yeah, what about... Um, uh, just to go back to Eleusis for a second. This is... So this is the Plutonian caves found at Eleusis. Um, you know, looking at this, I, I had a psychedelic experience a few years ago uh, where I was taken back through, like, history, and it was kind of like a slideshow of, like, psychedelic interactions through ancient people. And I just had this vision of Plato uh, participating in the greater mysteries and then walking over from the Telesterion to this Plutonian cave and then coming up with his uh, allegory of the cave. Um, I don't know uh, why that came to me, but it did. And it just kind of made sense. I don't know. I take um, it seriously. Things that come to you in those states are, those are epiphanies. You know, it's, it's not to say that Every, every idea that comes to you in that state is going to be scientifically verifiable or demonstrable, but it is saying that there's meaning, meaning in it. You're finding meaning in it. And that's, right. I think that's, that's more important than scientific corroboration. Right. And he's got that famous quote from the Phaedo um, on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, let me see here. I think that's all the cool pictures I have for that. I mean, I have, we did a whole ancient psychedelic episode here. Let's go back. Lee Tepe. Somebody was asking about that earlier. Um, but let me pull up. I think I had one. The, the book I have coming out. Oh yeah. What do you think about I'm this? The, the Opkalu and you see the, the, on the wrist, they have those like flower looking watch things. And then right. it looks like the dude's holding a cola. Now everybody says pine cone, but from talking with like Chris Bennett, um, the tree of life and all that kind of stuff. It does look like a cannabis uh, plant. It could be. Yep. Uh, you know, everybody interprets what they're holding as a, a basket or a, a bucket. Um, right. And it would, that might even be made out of hemp, that little, um, that little thing in his hand, that little well, I, I, handbag. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not certain it's a handbag. What do you um, think it is? Look at pillar 43 at Gobekli Tepe. Here, I've got it. Hold Ooh. on. I'll pull it up. At the top of 43 are those, what, what Graham Hancock interprets there you as go. the top handbags. He said, thinks these are those same handbags, but at the top left, you can see there's a hand holding that edge and it's holding it. The down coming out of these is water. This is rain happening, but they're demonstrating it the same way it's represented in Mayan iconography where they're pouring like a libation, turning it sideways. I think in some cases, it's not a basket. I think it's a handled pitcher that they're pouring a libation out from. Mm. And in this case, I think it's meant to indicate rain. Ooh. This pillar, this pillar is, uh, let me find it. See if I can find one of the most one. important. One. 43 is one of the most important ones, yeah. mainly for oh, the, nice. uh, 
the path of souls model because it it shows scorpio cygnus Mm -hmm. scorpion you can't really see him here but there's a scorpion under that line and And that's what the most most of the alternative theories on this is all correlated to some sort of comet or asteroid impact like during the younger dryas or potentially some sort of astronomical i don't i don't interpret it that way yeah yeah but here you can really see you can really see the hands on this one too holding those pictures turning them sideways Yes, yeah, somebody said, though, those are actually other an- little animals up there. T- and I've looked closely. I forget who was telling me. I can't really remember right now. But they're saying that there's, that's kind of cut off. You can, If you look very intricately at the top, those are actually other little animals, like a little frog and something else. I don't know. There is a frog on there. I think what we're talking about are hands. You can even see the fingers. Yeah, yeah. I, see. I know what you're talking about, but I do think that there's little animals up there too as well. There are. There are animals all over these things. Yeah. Um, but this is significant because in the Native American death journey, the, what they call the path of souls, the soul has to – and this is this, – is the main function of these platform mounds they would wait until the right time of year to do these funeral services um, you couldn't do them just any time because during the summer the great snake this giant snake would snatch your soul out of the air and take you into the underworld that great snake is scorpio they saw it as a snake and during the winter months scorpio never rises at night it never rises above the horizon he stays in the underworld So they thought, okay, this is the time to do funerals because he can't get us. So they would wait until um, the winter solstice, around the winter solstice, and they would face west in the direction of the sunset and slightly south, which is where Orion sets just before sunrise. And they didn't see it as Orion, obviously. That's a Greek idea they saw it as what they call the chief's hand or the hand star and what we recognize as orion's belt they saw as the wrist of this hand star and in the palm is what looks like an eyeball an eye this is a major aspect of mississippian iconography it shows up all over the place and it even shows up in the hopewell stuff so it goes back at least to hopewell but the eye and the palm is actually not an eye. It's what they call an ogi or an oji. Which yeah, is that's a, what Dr. Gregory posts those a lot. Those mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's it's meant to be like a vaginal vesica piscis, like a, a, an entry uh, uh, that you go into. Um, now we know it's not. It's it's actually it's a cowrie shell is what's in the hand and this cowrie shell is central to some of these secret societies and native americans like the Midewewin. Um they shoot these cowries into themselves uh, and as as a to show that they're an initiate they hold the cowrie in the center of their open palm and show others um, in in what they call the Midewigan, their their lodge but what it is, is that's the portal that gets you onto the path of souls. When we talked about that chunky game where they roll that disc and they have to throw the staff at it, that's training. They're training them how to do this because the, remember the sky falls, it moves. 
And once the sky falls and Orion goes under, you can get crushed by the falling sky. So you have to aim just right at the right time of the year. And they literally say you have to shoot your soul like an arrow into the palm of that hand. And then it'll carry you through the underworld safely. That leads you to the Milky Way. You have to make this sharp turn to get off the ecliptic and onto the Milky Way where you travel around. Once you travel around and come back up through the ecliptic on the east, uh, like, you're a, like you're the sun rising, you get to the top of the sky, which is where Cygnus is. And Cygnus for them is this, um, it's a vulture in Gobekli Tepe. Cygnus is a swan in right. Greece. For the Native Americans, it's a falcon. But it's this falcon figure called Brain Smasher. And he lives right at the fork in the Milky Way. The Milky Way has what they call the Dark Rift. And it's in the direction of Sagittarius. That Dark Rift is, is actually the black hole at the center of our galaxy. But it causes a, 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 an opening to happen. It looks like an opening in the Milky Way. Well, that opening, only one path keeps going. The other path paths it's a dead end and blocking that path is this is cygnus this vulture um, this falcon if he judges you favorably he opens the door to the long path and that leads you to the the final resting place where your ancestors are if they made it this far if he judges you unfavorably and you don't know you, you just know he's opened the road for you if he judges you unfavorably, he opens the door to the short path. And that once you go that way, you fall back down into the underworld and you, you either are lost to oblivion. Some traditions say you're reborn, reincarnated, that kind of thing. But that's, that's what we're seeing, um, I believe, on the Gobekli Tepe pillar. And, of course, the first thing in any rational person's mind is, what? why would you think that? I mean, one's in Turkey and the other's in North America. It's because the model is identical for Egypt and for Babylon. The Babylonians, uh, there's this great book by George Latura Beke called um, Visible Gates and Pagan Skies, where he's describing the same exact thing, this portal and Orion that you go through to get on the Milky Way. And then it's in, he, this first half of the book is about Greece. The middle is about Egypt and the last half is about Babylon. Well, I know and he shows Egypt. I mean, I've never, I've never read the book you're talking about, but I know the Egyptians. So that's like why, like Orion was important, or like different constellations, because they figured when they died, that's where they would meet up in the afterlife. Um, right. Wherever you have to know which which constellation right. to get into and what right. time to get into it, and then which directions to go once you've gotten into it. Yeah, that's the secret initiatory wisdom. Yeah. Um, of these traditions, how to get into the afterlife. That was originally the secret of the, of the Pharaohs, you know, and for the native Americans, particularly in the Southeast, it was taught in what they called medicine sodalities. Um, the Mide Wiwin or the grand medicine society, they, they situate their lodges East to West, but when someone dies, they situate it, north to south so east to west is the ecliptic the sunrise the planets move north to south is how the milky way moves so they position their lodge to the milky way and then and that they 
they have to be the psychopomp. The, the initiated person is the psychopomp that can guide the dead person who has not been initiated into the afterlife if they think they're worthy to do that. But that's the secret wisdom. It's the secret wisdom in, in Plato and in Neoplatonism. Um, if you read uh, Porphyry, Porphyry wrote this uh, commentary on, on Homer, uh, on the cave of the nymphs, it's called. But it's the same thing. He says this cave signifies our universe. And there are two entrances in this cave, one for mortals and one for immortals. The one for mortals is the gate we come in when we're born. The one for immortals is the one we go out when we've matured enough to this place to leave it. Once you go out of it, those portals sit on the Milky Way. Those that, that, so if we imagine the, the Zodiac wheel to be one wheel, and we imagine the Milky Way to be another wheel, the two points at which they intersect are where those two portals are. That's in Greece, that's in Egypt, that's in Sumeria, and that's in freaking Native America. It is, and I'm certain that's what Pillar 43 is about in Turkey. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's overwhelming. I wouldn't even know about this if it weren't for Greg Little. I mean, I... Oh, no, I, I, I love Dr. Greg. He's... Um... He's a wealth of knowledge. Obviously, he's got the book on Native American mounds, the encyclopedia, yep. and uh, we just we've had, we've had him on like five cool. times, probably more than most guests on our show. He's he's very generous with his time. Uh, he he turned me on to all this stuff. I, I had written my book. The book that's going to come out before the Native American book is on theurgy, theurgy, and theory and practice. Yeah, dude, and you have more books. All, all your posts are, but I read a shitload, by the way. I'm like, where the hell is this dude getting all these fucking books? I've never even he heard of half of these fucking books. It's most of them are specialized texts that cost between a hundred and two hundred fifty dollars. It's yeah, ridiculous. that's crazy. Once once you get into this tier of literature, you're gonna go broke. I promise. <laughs> it's 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 very hard. I mean, now I've gotten to the point where if I want to keep going, I have to sell the books I have. Yeah, I see. Just you, if anybody's interested, follow PD on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. He's always posting books that he's trying to sell mm -hmm. to get That's new right. books and further his uh, research. So, yep, yep. But well, he, Greg, he, he, I hadn't read his book yet. The book I wrote on theurgy, theurgy is this Platonic system of ritual that's designed to get your soul into the regions where the Pharaoh could get, basically. But out of all of the Platonic and Neoplatonic texts, they never, it's never spelled out what the ritual is. What is this theurgic ritual? This rite of elevation, they call it. And I finally found one description. It's and it and it it was in a recently published translation of Proclus's commentary on Plato's Republic. And in it he spells out the ritual. And that ritual is a funeral. He, he, he says that if we take the funeral that, that Achilles gives for Patroclus in Homer and do that to a living person, that's theurgy. And it's about the same thing. It's about getting these, these portals. This, it's a ritual way to do what Porphyry was describing. Excuse me, about I those mean, two Shane's gates. looking for portals. we got to hook this guy up. You know? The portals there, so... One, one Greek author says there are three portals. Most of them say there are two. 
the portals exist in the signs of Taurus and Scorpio. That's where the Milky Way touches on each side and those signs. Now, Porphyry, he's Hellenistic. So he's using tropical astrology, meaning he doesn't care where the planets are out there. It's always based at zero degrees Aries is on March 20 on the spring equinox. It doesn't move. Unlike sidereal astrology, which takes into account the precession of the equinoxes, the fact that every few you know, hundred years, it moves over a degree, moves backwards. So he, he puts this, the, the gates in cancer and Leo and calls them not, uh, excuse me, cancer and Capricorn and calls them the gates of the sun, uh, yeah, the gate of the moon and the gate of Saturn. The moon rules cancer, Saturn rules, rules Capricorn. He's placed them there because 100% because he's an, a Hellenist and he doesn't care where they actually are. Every other text says, no, it's not there. One's in Taurus, one's in Scorpio. Latura Beke shows different cylinders carved with these scorpion gods guarding one gate and bull gods guarding the other gate. And they lead to this giant serpent that you have to get along. That serpent is the Milky Way. It's it, This giant serpent is represented in both some Egyptian imagery and in Babylonian as the Milky Way. Um, so that's the portals, the two portals. One leads to remember the, the, the split in the Milky way where the, where the yeah black hole really is. Yeah. That's one portal. You go that way. You don't come back. That's the road that is the dead end. You ain't getting nowhere. If you go that way, the other portal is in the palm of that hand and, and in the sign of Orion. This is the, the constellation of Orion, which is against the sign of Taurus. There's something and, um, I want to show you here. Well, first of all, here's that image. Let me pull this up here. So I got my, my ugly mug over it. I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here you have on the left, you have Blue Lotus. And then on the right, you have the mushrooms. That's what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about right. um, Temple of uh, Hathor. And Vutar um, Hanegraaff, um, he wrote a great book recently on hermit, hermitism, if, if you get a chance to read it. But he did a, did a lecture for Harvard Divinity School when they were going through, you know, different spiritual practices within theogens. And he focused on the Mithras liturgy out of the Greek magical papyri. Um, I have a copy of here and I'll show you these. Can everybody see this? So the Greek magical papyri, this is one of the few surviving Egyptian spell books. And in it is, is something called the Mithras liturgy. This is it extracted with a long commentary. Was that picture, was that a scarab with Horus's face on it? Yeah, yeah. That's, so the scarab is... He's who moves the sun through the right. underworld like a dung beetle, right. rolls it. Um, but in the Mithras liturgy, it's, an, it's a ritual of ascent where this woman comes to this, this priest figure, 
kind of like a Zosimos Theoso, Theoso, Theosabia situation. And he gives, gives her this ritual that's called a, a ritual of apothenatissimos, which means immortalization. Now, it's interesting because by immortalization, they don't mean you're going to be immortal forever after you do it. They, they mean when it's happening, you're immortal. You're, you're in the place of the gods. And she ascends and she's able to open the doors of heaven and see into the doors of heaven, just the same way Parmenides does with the giant doors, but it's the underworld for him. But in it, there's a scarab beetle that is added to an oil along with a plant. We don't know what this plant is, chondritis. Some people interpret it as cannabis. Um, it's described in the commentary here as having red roots, which with the acacia stuff, very significant. But it... it Hanegraaff interprets this scarab as code for something else, possibly a mushroom, because they put it in this oil and then they take the oil and anoint the face. And it's after this that she's able to ascend, just like a flying ointment. We see the same thing in the, the earliest Christian rituals. You know, the, when the Christians started, they were a secret society. We don't know what they were doing. The first time it was revealed what they were doing was when this anti-Christian guy uh kelsis wrote this book against the christians in it he says what they do is they get together and they anoint themselves in this what he calls the white unguent of the tree of life and after they do this they're able to leave their body and ascend through the levels of heaven that's how we know like all this stuff right like Irenaeus, all that kind of stuff that's how we know about like gnosticism it's all the opposition it's never <laughs> We right. never have the uh, the actual doctrine. Well, this is just Christian, you know. Right, right. He doesn't say this is Gnostic. This is Christian. Now, right. when, when Origen comes along, Clement's student, um, he rebuts this. Right, it's a long rebuttal, saying he's you know he's wrong. These aren't Christians. These people are what we call Ophites. They're Ophite Gnostics. But when he starts telling what's wrong with it he doesn't say that they don't do the ritual he doesn't say that they don't anoint themselves in this oil and ascend to heaven what he says is their their heavens are out of order he's mad because their heavens are in the wrong order which is again part of the secret wisdom like how what it actually looks like when you get out there where to go when you die so he almost corroborates the claim but he just combats the 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 particulars the but generally, it looks like the early Christians were doing the same thing. There's another um, Christian Gnostic text called the Book of Joy or the Book of Jew, J-E-U. Um, in it, they have these series of baptisms where they place a plant in their mouth while they're being baptized. The name of this plant, Cenocephalon, means dog-headed. Now, it's anybody's guess what that is it could be that could mean anubis you know take you to the underworld psychopomp kind of thing I, I don't know but that's what they call the plant the only other time this plant shows up in literature is in plenty of the elder where he's saying it was used at one time for necromancy and the soul of homer was called from the underworld using it during a ritual strange stuff but this it looks like this kind of thing is at the root like you said at the beginning like it doesn't have to be psychedelics but a visionary experience 
is at the beginning of every religion. It, it, it takes that state of consciousness for the to for the myth to thrust itself upon you, like to see it firsthand and and know that that must be true. The way I said that earlier, not guess or say, well, it wouldn't be, wouldn't it be cool if? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, let's start to kind of wrap it up here. Do you have, do you want to do like a, like a 10 minute short Patreon on St. Peter snow? Cause I did, oh, read sure, that, yeah. I did read that paper you sent me. So let's start. To, yeah. Yeah. Let's wrap it up here. Then we'll do that. We'll do a short Patreon. We'll all upload it uh, later on, but I wanted to pull up one thing I found here. I was doing an episode on Easter Island. Um, you know, the different cults, the, uh, Manu Manu, the Birdman cult, and the Moai builder cult. And I came across, um, you know, there's a lot of like, obviously like psychedelic, uh, iconography, do you know anything about this Acacia Cavern? Um, this is new to me. Okay, so this is found, this is actually a tree found on Easter Island. It's Acacia tree. Um, we know that there's pre-Columbian South American DNA found uh, with you know the Rapa Nui people have that. So there's people going back and forth. There's Polynesian people going to Easter Island. Then you have also people coming probably from South America to Easter Island, and even. Um, there's a ahu, which is the altar that the Moai stand on. There's a ahu that looks exactly like some of the uh, megalithic stones from um, Sacsayhuaman in South America. So, and anybody who doesn't wow. know, um, Easter Island is off. It's part of Chile now. Like it's part of the country of Chile, but it's it's off. It's like um, it's one of the most remote places on Earth. But yeah, it's by like the Marquesas Islands, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely look into this. Yeah, so I wanted to pull this up. This is uh, the slide from the Easter Island episode I did. Because they, they, what happens is there's these long ears versus the short ears in the mythology, which signifies to anthropologists and uh, ethnographer like Thor Heyerdahl, I don't know if you know who that is, um, that it might have been the South American people uh, going against the Polynesian people. Um, and then, and then you, later on you have like cannibalism found on the island and stuff like that. But so obviously these people, um, you know, what were they doing? What was all this stuff happening? And I, I think that, um, one of them, you know, you found, they found that shamanic, uh, fox snout pouch in Bolivia, uh, 1000 AD. Um, again, we know the connections between South America and Easter Island as well right. as obviously. And it had, it had, um, Yopo in it and which is. Yopo comes from Anadananthera peregrina or Colubrina. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you too. Is like that's an acacia, basically. Right. I was going to ask you, Anadanthera. Obviously, a lot of Native American tribes use it. Um, that's part of like you know you can make snuff out of it. Would you get the same kind of effects that you would get from like smoking DMT, or is that not anywhere near that? Oh, they so. Th- in South America, they found what they call smoking tubes, which is basically a chillum that shows evidence of, of smoking in adenanthera seeds going way back. Um, have you ever smoked Yopo seeds? Oh, uh, no, dude. I still haven't even smoked DMT. <laughs> okay. So. Yopo, so Yopo seeds are absolutely active by themselves. Um, you take the seeds and you gotta, you heat them up in a skillet. <laughs> that's how we did it 
and they'll swell up. They'll get kind of fat. And once they get fat like that, take them off the heat. Cause is what, that the thing doing that is, Hamilton Morris did an episode where he went to Argentina? Uh, that's the, he did. He did it with a legit shaman. That guy he met out of all the episodes Hamilton's done and, and, meets these people that claim to be this certain kind of thing. That guy was the most legitimate shaman I've ever seen. But he didn't have a real experience. But who's the guy that they were talking about that wrote the book on doing that, that lived with like those tribes for a while? I forget the dude's name. Um, I'm not, if it's not Schultes, I'm not sure. No, it's not Schultes. Schultes. He's a more newer, he's, he's a little bit older, but he's, he's, I can't, this was really bugging me. And I, I didn't, I forgot to look up his name after last episode. Um, he wrote a book on the snuff and bufo, uh, bufatine. Is that how you pronounce it? Bufatine. Bufatine. Yeah. Yes. Um, he wrote a book on these seeds and the snuff. Ah, oh, what the hell is this guy's name? He's kind of like a recluse within the psychedelic community, but very revered. And I forget his name. Wretch. Who? Wretch. Christian Wretch. No. No, nope. not Christian Ratch. This dude's like a, a big name, dude. I'm telling you, you would if... Uh, I'm trying to blank here. It's pissing me off. Um, I know what you're talking about, and, and um, that episode is, uh, is, uh, is, is available. I think you can watch it in full on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so any viewers want to explore that. But it, it's uh, there's a le- very legitimate shaman there. But he creates a snuff out of it. I've never snuffed it, but we we would heat the seeds up and peel the outside off. They're covered in this brown film. And you can just smoke those seeds, and you are overwhelmed with it. Every I've ever done it, I've had to lay down. That's how strong it is. That's it, how potent it is. You can just smoke it and get a DMT flash. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um and, and that was used within, I know, some indigenous Mexican tribes um, use the Ananathera. What about any of the American? In the, Jujuy, in the Jujuy province of Argentina, evidence shows that it's been used for 4,000 years. And whenever, uh, so I, and a lot of people don't know this, Christopher Columbus was the first person to document Yopo use. Yeah, wasn't his, um, one of his... Uh priests or somebody on his uh team yep. he watched them using it and described it and later avon humboldt the explorer went to the same region to try and find the the plant and he found it and he called it acacia neopo neopo after yopo um, so it was originally classified as an acacia and i think that's one one of the places that the royal society got that information about the acacia and their their search for drugs because one of their concerns was cartography and they had Columbus's maps and a bunch of maps <clears throat> that. And the other source was probably the Hartlib papers. Um, Hart, Hartlib had a circle of alchemists that surrounded him, but he interpreted Paracelsus's Azoth as Acacia. He basically switches out Azoth for Acacia and quotes Paracelsus to a T uh, shout out to uh, Dean McGrath for bringing that to my attention and that those papers were in the possession of the Royal Society too. Yeah. I think that, uh, Hamilton's don't that, do they call it Hataj or Hata that H A T A J. Is that the one? Uh, I, I, that that's beyond my, uh, my knowledge there. 
Oh, that was the one I think for the episode from uh, Argentina where they were doing the snuff. Okay. Uh, I think that's what they call yeah, it. Pina, I, I, I know Pina and Yopo are the yeah. two names I, I'm familiar with. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean this all this stuff again. There's just so many connections to all this stuff, and I know we're like super nerds, and nobody really gives a shit in the real world, right? Like nobody gives a shit about this. Uh, but well, you think of, I mean, we're talking about the Royal Society on a ra- rabid scramble for drugs, and and we're the only one that fucking cares. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's that. It's the idea of all of our ideas of metaphysical things. And it's not to say that they don't exist, but I think it's important. It's like if you're going to be into religion, don't you think it's important you understand where that like religion comes from or those ideas behind your philosophies or spirituality come from? You know, like it's just stuff like that where it's it just makes me wonder. Um, yeah, it just makes me wonder. I don't know. Yeah, we're grown. I, I say this when I give lectures in Masonic lodges, because there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of Masons that don't like what I'm saying, but it's history. And and when I when you lay it out and you show, show cite your sources and show how this happened, I mean, we should be big boys and be able to to say, oh well, that's that's interesting. You know, that this the 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 tendency to cover up or hide information that's embarrassing or that you didn't expect we got to get over that stuff you know we we got so much history that we we're just starting to scratch the surface on on what took place the next step is to you know uh, accept it (laughs) so what what are your two book can you tell us what your two books are coming up here what they're about yeah, the, so the book that'll come out first, um, I don't have dates on any of them yet, but they're both coming out with Inner Traditions, Baron Company. <clears throat> the first one is on theurgy and theory and practice, and it looks at uh, the Neoplatonists themselves. They had this tendency when they talked about theurgy to talk about it in Homeric terms. And so what the book does is it, it unpacks those Homeric references, those claim Neoplatonic claims to Homeric theurgy and takes them at their word. And, and I'm trying to say, you know, let's, let's see what they mean by this. And in doing that, I can't, I mean, I came to, after reading book after book, after book on theurgy and Neoplatonism, I came to the, the conclusion that, this is the only way to understand theurgy is to take them at their word and go back and look at what Homer is saying. Um, so that's what the book does. And uh, the second book, um, the title for it is Tripping the Path of Souls, Native American Shamanism and the Mississippi Valley. And it looks at what we've been talking about, these um, botanical assemblages that were recovered, how they use them and this path of souls model as steps along the afterlife. <clears throat> and then it looks at um, the my Misahuasca hypothesis, which I, I, I think is a very important. I, I, if that's true, then we have to reevaluate everything. Uh, and I think it is true, uh, but the, the 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 notion that that an ayahuasca analog was being used in North America by Native Americans, <coughs> Native North Americans, 
um, it's a game changer. And, uh, and I, and I'm really, I'm, I'm not, I'm nervous about this book. I've never been nervous about, even with the, my DMT and masonry books, I wasn't nervous about them. I had I, Jonathan Ott. That's the dude. Sorry, I just said Ott. Yeah, Jonathan yep, Ott. That's right. That's who I was trying to think of. That's that's Ott, Ott's brilliant. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut um, you off. No, that's that's fine. I'm glad you remembered because I, I I I couldn't remember either. Yeah, supposedly he's like a master <laughs> at the the buf uh, bufotnin. Bufatinine, excuse me, Bufatinine ceremonies with the, the Andanathera seeds and all that stuff. So, man, he wrote a whole I, book on it, I think. So, yeah, I didn't know that. I don't have that book. I have most of the books I have are um, <clears throat> with other authors. Um, so yeah, dude, I'm pumped. Uh, I love your work. I love Dr. Gregory's stuff. I'm glad you guys are consulting. Um, and uh obviously, he's in memphis so i can't not yeah consult with him. yeah he's so close he's in our documentary uh as within so without from uh ufos to dmt i'll play the trailer at the end i asked pd to be in it we had some technical difficulties so he's gonna i'm gonna have pd write a little something that i'll uh fit in the documentary as well too so you can be a part of it i'm glad to um but yeah let's wrap it up here and do a short patreon um Anybody can just go check out uh, PD's books, Alchemically Stoned and Angels in Vermilion. I have the uh, links down below. I have the link to his Facebook group. Uh, he is on Twitter, I believe. What's your Twitter handle? It's PD or P underscore D, something like that. Yeah, I think that's right, P underscore D, uh, something like that. I'll add, I, I'll add the link at the thing. But, yeah, follow I'm him so under. terrible with remembering that. Dude, time. you should use Twitter more. I think it's more psychedelic friendly than any of the other. Uh, you think app. so yeah there's a nice okay. psych psychedelic community kicking um anytime i have posts uh yeah you've got like lots of people prevalent on there you know you've got your andrew gallimores and people that are you know interacting with people on there on a regular basis and stuff so i mean i like all it right. the best out of all of them but i think it would be it's it's right up your alley for what you're doing too so i'll do that yeah um, i'll take you up Let's see here. Yeah, so just follow uh, PD on all the stuff. Buy his books if you haven't already. Shout out to everybody that's been in the chat. Uh, screen name. I know PD, your your Danny, your brother was in there for a while. Um, KR. Oh, yeah. uh, Shout out to Michael. Ebits. I don't know. I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, Ebits. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know half the things I know if it wasn't for Michael. He he was my partner in crime and he was my he's my younger brother 14 months younger than me so obviously he was my guinea pig for a lot of drugs <laughs> and he was the first one to do salvia um you know i would give it to him and watch how he acted and then i'd take it <laughs> have you ever masticated the leaves or have you only just smoked it i've only smoked it but i do have um a, so i was sent back from australia with a, a psychedelic a psychoactive mint that oh I don't, it, it, they call it a sage, but, uh, he, the, my host Khalil drank some of it and he said that he got a, entered a very head, heady space. <clears throat> it's not salvia divinorum, but it's some kind of a, something they're calling a salvia that's in the mint family and it's psychoactive. That's weird that you so, say that. Um, I was just going back and forth with Sandy, who's a friend of the show. She's been a guest as well. 
Um, and that's her, that's why she thinks she was just came back from Eleusis. Actually, she has tons of pictures of her trip, but she's talking about how the mint that's on the ingredients list. She's talking the same thing. Yeah. But she's saying that she thinks that there could have been a strain or something kind of like what you're saying right now, something in the mint family or sage, uh, that has salvia like properties. Um, it's definitely possible there. There. So in ancient Greece, they mention. Um, a psychoactive ivy that we no longer have an ivy you can get high on they mentioned um, celery a type of celery you could get high on there's a great video i didn't even know wild lettuce can get you uh torqued oh, well yeah so there's lots of different strains of wild lettuce but the one we get here um it's uh they call it opium lettuce i'm trying to think of the lactuca verosa is the species but it contains hyoscyamine which is also in Datura and Black Nightshade. So it's in that family. Yeah. Do you like not the tropanes? Oh, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a tropane guy. I just, does nothing I, for me. I, uh, so I, I like them in this form. I prefer to take them in uh, ointments. Okay. This ointment is, um, I, I'm, I'm having trouble. There we go. You can see it. Yeah. Um, you, I prefer it on the come down of other substances. If I'm coming down from LSD or something, I'll put it on my wrist, the back of my neck. But if you get enough of it to have what we would call a real, real psychedelic experience from it, it's not pleasant. You know, you, 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 you get severe dry mouth. Um, if What's it's the one that they like, mix in with uh, ayahuasca? Is that Brulens or uh, Brugancia or Brugmancia? Yeah, yeah. Um, Brugmancia aria. Brugman- there are several strains. I heard those white. ayahuasca. Like I've had a couple people on the show that are like, "Dude, <laughs> I, that's not something I would try again." It's like next level it. ayahuasca shit. There. I've had it. I've had it one time, and uh, I had a rough, rough experience with it. They call it toe. They put they they'll just put like one flower or or a couple of leaves in a whole batch and it completely changes it. Well, and, and this is common South trop- America. Adding tropanes are biologically ones. not as safe, obviously, as like tryptamines and stuff. So right, they are they will kill you if you take yeah. too much. But that being said, they're you know we think about hallucinogens as being tryptamines or ergotines right uh, entheogens entheogens right that that which generates the god within we think of as those kinds of drugs there's more evidence that tropane plants were used as entheogens than any of the other ones i mean we know they were using that stuff but uh the problem is you know half the time you don't remember it you have complete amnesia in regard to the experience if you eat enough, it can last up to, uh, there's a report of, um, one of the first reports in America of, of soul, Spanish soldiers eating it. And, and he was intoxicated for 11 days. That's, a, that's scary. That's to me. crazy. I got, yeah, kids. Yeah. I, got, I got three kids, but two of them are grown, but I got a, a little kid, you know, Yeah. that uh, I can't even imagine doing something like that. Sounds like that persisting, uh, what's it called? Um, HPPD yeah HPPD but yeah let's wrap it up here again check out all of uh, PD's links follow him on social media buy his books if you haven't already check you know 
uh also stay tuned he's obviously got a couple books coming out here um and we'll have him back on i mean he's welcome on anytime you can come on as much or as little as you want so we definitely have you back on i know actually i was talking with alec maybe we can do one with both you and alec too i think that would be kind of cool oh yeah that'd be fun alec and i go way back <laughs> um, but yeah this was awesome there's obviously a million things that we didn't get to that we probably could have talked about too so uh, but yeah, we'll do a Patreon. Have fun with you guys. Yeah, St. Peter Snow, and uh, yeah, love nerding out with you. And I know a lot of our fans who are well read into these subjects really appreciate you and your research. And uh, um, well, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I look. I think that uh, when people do their homework and their research, the passion really comes through. And I think that that's what people respond to through you. Is like you're not just nerding out about this stuff to like you know you're not out there making millions and millions of dollars you're actually out there for this quest for this other thing and i think that that obviously is rare and that again when people do that uh and it's it's true and it's it's passionate i think people really respond to that so yeah yeah well i appreciate it that's uh, i have uh, i have a lot of gratitude for all my fans and readers awesome man anything you want to ask shane before we uh wrap it up here I oh, appreciate you coming. Like I said, a lot of this is me learning, and you answered a lot of my questions too. Some of the stuff that was pertinent to me. So thank you very much. I just wanted to also say, you guys, if you're watching, check this out. Uh, check out Wounded Warrior. They saved my life. Uh, donate if you can. I appreciate that. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Shane. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, and thank you, Shane, for the super chats. This guy's single handedly funding these episodes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, but seriously, dude, love you, appreciate, it, and uh, I love when you come on. Shout out to, like I said, everybody in chat, KR, Ebits, Screen Name, uh, Lighthammer, uh, Michael, uh, Steven, uh, let's see here, who else did we get in here earlier? Leah was in there for a while, Alec, uh, Alex, uh, Trent, Bob Marley. I think it's the real Bob Marley. I'm going to be honest. I don't know for a fact, but I, I heard, I heard, I heard we, I'm big in Jamaica. <laughs> I heard we, uh, definitely called upon the spirit through this, the, the spirit of this conversation. So, um, but yeah, that's it. We're going to wrap it up here. We're going to do a short Patreon, uh, segment with PD. I'll upload that probably later tonight or tomorrow. Um, and yeah, I, I just really appreciate what he's doing. We do have two past episodes with him. If you want to continue the listening pleasures, we did one on Alchemically Stoned. And uh, more recently, we did on one on Angels and Vermilion, which I'll also add those links to the thing. If you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the Linktree link down below. We do have a merch store, which I have some psychedelic-inspired um, you know, designs in there, some ancient... Uh, you know, knowledge type ones and just some really interesting ones in general. So check that out. Uh, I also, um, yeah, if you want to support the show, the best way to do it's honestly just leaving us a nice review on Spotify or Apple or subscribing to our YouTube channel and liking it. We do all of our episodes live on YouTube. Uh, and we are also on all audio platforms, including video episodes on Spotify and, uh, yeah, our documentary, As Within, So Without, from UFOs to DMT, premieres March 10th through 12th at the Roswell UFO Expo. Uh, Shane and, and Toby and I will all be speaking there, uh, as well as you can check out our other podcast I do with Shane. It's called the Roswell UFO Symposium. Maybe we can get PD on there and talk straight, 
straight UFOs. That would be kind of fun, I think. Let's do it. That'd be cool. uh, as well yeah. as don't forget, I'm also on um, witness to a uh, military witness to UAP, my third yeah. podcast. So check that one out as well. <laughs> yeah, check Shane out on there. And actually, we just interviewed James Fox, who uh, directed and uh, made the, the phenomenon. If you've ever seen that. Uh, uh, UFO documentary. I think it's the best one out there. And he just recently came out with a new one called Moment of Contact on the Virginia uh, Brazilian case. Uh, so yeah, that's it. I'm going to play the documentary trailer on the way out. And we love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks, guys. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky. You know, you know you're not dreaming, but you wonder how real any of it really is. It dawned on me, it, it was real, this, this took place, but then I still didn't do anything with it, never said anything to anybody. There is some mind-altering aspect to these UFO encounters. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time. I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation. It was a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. The chemicals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive how things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that, one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. You call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense, and that when this experience is over, that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die, because it can't die, fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now. They show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug. Coming from a scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetic to atmospheric to something that's physical in nature. There's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system 
the human body is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more as within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.